Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is this week is a doozy. Um, this week our guest is one of the most in-demand, busy, also successful producers of the last like 20, 25 years. Jack Knife Lee. Now, boy, there's so much to cover in here. <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming to be completely honest with you. First and foremost, let's talk about some of the people he has produced that these are only the ones that come up in the conversation we're having here. Let me read off this list to you, okay? The Killers, Neil Diamond, Weezer, Modest Mouse, James, Block Party, Tudor Cinema Club, One Direction, Taylor Swift, AFI, REM, Snow Patrol, Editors, L King, The Cars. Those are just the bands that come up in this conversation, which is a long one, obviously. But that, I mean, that's the, listen to that list. We didn't even get to U2. He won a Grammy for producing How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. We didn't even get around to talking about U2, which is where his career began. He actually didn't want to talk about U2. That's the main reason why. But anyway, so there's that. Secondly, there are his own solo albums that he's been putting out over the years. Really forward-thinking dance music, whether he's doing it on his own or more than likely collaborating with other people. You're listening right here to his song, Cookies, that was a hit back in 1999. It says his own name in it, so I thought this is the perfect song to intro this episode with. He actually put out a new album of his own, The Jackknife Lee, last year. And it features people like Beth Ditto, Open Mike Eagle, Sneaks. He likes to work with all these really these people that have their finger on the pulse of what's happening and uh, and he gets more into that i'll tell you more about that in a second thirdly he goes off and collaborates with people and sort of starts their his own secondary third tributary bands we'll say and in this case we're here to talk about one called telefiche which he has done with his fellow irishman cathal Coughlin. I would tell you the name of this album, but it's an Irish word that I don't know how to pronounce, but it's coming out on March 4th. So in actuality, I kick off the conversation asking him about Telefiche, which is really what brought us together. And then it goes down a million other ways. Um, it's a long conversation, but it is so full of a lot of gold and a lot of really interesting trivia. In fact, something I'll tell you, when we did this conversation, he was calling me from his um, from his home studio in Topanga Canyon, Southern California. And his home studio is totally tricked out. All the synthesizers you've ever seen in your life, stacks, actually I should say shelves and shelves of record albums all over everywhere. Every other musical instrument there is. Christmas lights dangling from everywhere. The atmosphere is incredible. And you can tell that's his happy place to go and create. What's also really interesting about this conversation and the reason, one of the reasons it goes for so long is because he tells his story in here that's so fascinating about how he was basically getting sick of his own music. He was getting sick of the music that he was making and he needed to re-jigger, redo what he, what inspires him to be creative. And these are the fruits of that changing in his life. Anyway. There's a lot of everything going on in here. I hope you hear some some stories that you like, the music that inspires him, the music he's making. There was more than we could cram into two and a half hours, which was still a super long conversation. So anyway, hope you enjoy this. As I said, he called me from his home in Topanga Canyon. 
Okay, so let's start with the new stuff because honestly, I have been trying to focus a lot on the new stuff. Not that I wouldn't have anyway, but I'm overwhelmed by how many different projects you have going on, coming out, in play at the moment. I've tried to put my fingers on all of them and, and absorb all of them. I did my very best. But let's talk about Telefiche at first because this sounds like a, a collaboration that you're especially proud of. And I'm wondering how it happened and why. Burp. I've been drinking Tobo Chico and it just <laughs> makes me burp. Um, so, so Telefiche is one of a lot of projects, many projects I'm doing at the moment. And how it came about was because I had a change in, in my life that, 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 that encouraged me to, to work differently. I moved to Los Angeles in 2009 because I was getting bored in England, not bored of England, but just bored of myself there. And I came here. And once I came here, Everyone's told me, you know, things that I had to do, uh, you know, certain ways of working and doing songwriting sessions and all this kind of stuff. And I did all the sensible stuff and I'm not blaming anybody else. I just kind of went along with what, uh, you know, what people told me was the mm -hmm. wisest thing to do. So I did a lot of songwriting sessions and I did pop sessions and I, you know, I made some records that, that, that connected with people. Um, but I realized I wouldn't buy any of them. Mm. And that, that, that's, that, that struck me. Uh, a few years later, when I when I thought, you know, I have a room full of records. You've just seen the room. Mm -hmm. I started teaching middle school kids music because my kids were going to the school and they needed something to do with. They needed people to engage with kids, and I thought, well, I do music, so I invite them around. And they all came around with all this amazing joy and excitement. Um, they'd come in the morning, and then they'd all leave. You know, they'd play all the instruments, and we'd write music and make instruments listen to records and they'd be, they'd be all filled with possibility. And then I would go, people would arrive here straight after the kids left and we'd have a, a writing session where there was none of those feelings of curiosity or what would happen if we did this. And everyone was bringing their functional games, utilitarian writing, mm -hmm. you know, they would do things that they felt were commercial or acceptable uh -huh. or, or, um, you know what their idea of accessibility safe. was yeah. safe and it was just thing and it works because it gets on the radio and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff and I realized part of my brain was shutting down um, that I wasn't doing I wasn't exploring I wasn't being playful mm -hmm. I was just being efficient and professional mm -hmm. and 
you know, I remember that things like when I was in a band, we would rehearse in the in the rehearsal room and we'd have a boombox and record rehearsals to cassette. Sounded great. We'd book a studio, go into a big posh studio, or not a big posh studio, we go to a studio. And we'd start playing and we sounded terrible on tape. So something happened. Something happened between the rehearsal room and the recording that, that things started being done correctly. Separation happened, you know, separation of sound. Mm-hmm. The distortion from the cassette disappeared. So things started, uh, miking started to get better. And it, all the quirkiness and all the weird things that we felt was, was there disappeared. So I never paid attention to the time, but when this came up and I was writing music that was getting successful, but was purely utilitarian in a kind mm-hmm. of um, Stalinistic idea of what pop music should be or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, once I thought I, I, I'm actually slowly dying mm-hmm. and um, I wouldn't buy these records and um, I, and I shouldn't expect anybody else to, there's there, you know, the records are, are being asked to be liked rather than to be loved mm-hmm. or to be challenging. And, um, you know, people were talking to me about uh, kids, the attention span of kids and and things that kids like is all stupid and dumb. And I'd be in here playing Tribe Called Quest or Can, and they would go, it's awesome. And, yeah. you know, we do covers of, um, you know, of weird Bowie songs with the kids. And then I'd come to do these Kelly Clarkson sessions and we'd be talking about shite, you know, just utter drivel. And everyone would bring boring couplets and i thought this isn't this isn't why i made music and i'm trying to tell these kids that music is a great life you should do this and i realized everybody in the adult room the grown-up room was all they weren't they they, they had lost something a light had gone out yeah so with that i decided well to hell with this i'm not going to do these records anymore and i stopped doing those sessions and i just started doing my own thing and and i got back in touch with why i made music in the first place the records that i liked the records that I, I had spent good money on in this room weren't summer hits, but a lot of them weren't. A lot of them were challenging records, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sonically. They weren't acceptable. They weren't tasteful, you know. Um, they, were, they were just awkward anomalies. And, yeah. um, and so I realized I've got to get back in touch with my amateur state. Mm. You know, my, my um, things that made me giddy and excited when I was a kid. And then when I was in a band, why had all these things disappeared when I started, you know, when I started making producing records, Yeah, I had a laptop and I had a uh, Mackie desk and I went, I produced my first U2 record on my laptop. And, uh, you know, when, 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 and I was, and I used logic and when, when I was recording, when I, when I was mixing, with the band in there, or Bono would be doing a vocal. When I came to the chorus, because so many, so much information happened at the chorus, my computer would crash. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm recording the biggest band in the world with, a, with mm-hmm. on a laptop. Mm-hmm. And then I thought I got to get myself sorted out here and get a bigger thing. You know, mm-hmm. so to when I was making those records, producing those records in the early 2000s, whenever that was, I would just get the drum file from the band I record and then bounce it down. I get a nice balance or, you know, I do some triggers or whatever, edit it up. And then I'd bounce it down to a stereo file and then I'd edit that. And then I'd make, get the guitars. And I would just bounce down until I had stereo files. Mm-hmm. And as I became more professional, I felt like I needed always to act professionally and make 
be, act like Hansel and Gretel, leaving mm. traces of previous versions so I could always go back. But that made me operate in a more safe way. Mm. Um, um, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about Jack White and, and his reasoning for using tape rather than digital. Mm. And mm -hmm. he likes tape because it prevents him, it forces him to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. And, and so that's, a, that's, that's his problem. That's not, mm -hmm. a that's not a problem of logic or Pro Tools or Ableton. That's a problem of humans mm -hmm. make a decision. So I used to make a decision because I, my, um, it wasn't because I was using tape. It was because I didn't have enough power in my computer. So when I, when I stopped doing that, you know, I would, I would go into studios um, this is coming back to Telefiche, by the way. And I'd go into a studio and I'd put like 12 mics on a kit. Mm -hmm. And I would have, you know, the fun mic. I would have a mic that was fun. And I knew that's where the energy was. But like I'd be two months into a record and I'd forget that was the fun mic. And I'd start using the safe mics. Oh, interesting. So, you know, that, but that happens all the time. So, you know, so those little, little, not compromise, but those little things, those little leaning into professionalism. Yeah altered the way I worked, the way I dealt with music, the way I dealt with documenting music. So I realized that all those things had to go. And I had to, you know, get out of the computer and start programming and stop, uh, stop programming and stop using any keyboards that had presets mm -hmm. or even saving capabilities. Like don't save anything. Save mm -hmm. now. So then I stopped taking any shortcuts. I didn't save any settings on my computer. So every time I plug Every time I plug a mic in, I have to start from scratch. I don't have like vocal chain. I don't have any chains. Mm -hmm. so, um, it prevents me from taking any shortcuts. And that's the same with making sounds on, on the synths or, or, or like going from a compressor into a, the culture vulture or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with miking kits and things like that. So I just started um, stopping shortcuts, stopping using any of the same methods I use in records and have every record be one of discovery. Yeah. That, so, so, um, so along with all this was rem me rem rem reminding myself and remembering why I was a fan of music, mm -hmm. like an actual fan that went out and bought records rather than blagged tickets for gigs or, mm -hmm. you know, listen to music for research, like mm -hmm. listen to music, put the whole record on, listen to it for pleasure and remember why you bought it. Mm -hmm. You know, would I drive 45 minutes down to Amoeba or Paradise, spend 35 bucks on a vinyl would i would i do that with my own records and i realized that i wouldn't so i'd work in something for six months but i wouldn't buy it yeah so that says yeah. a lot about uh what what was wrong with me it really so does I, can i inter so, can i interrupt yeah. one thing real quick i want to you said something that i i can't get out of my mind i keep waiting for a break so i can insert this when you were talking a minute ago about having uh artists come into that room of yours and listen to we put on a tribe called quest and we put on can and our minds are blown by how great this music is what i think you're saying is that then you didn't go and make that kind of music no if you can aspire why wouldn't you always aspire to make the music that is exciting you when you're trying to make music rather than play it safe Yes, is that well, kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, when I was talking about that, I was talking, I, I was playing those records to yeah. 12, year, 12 year olds. Oh, interesting. And they, and they were getting off on it. And then, you know, so then, and then I would go and make pop music, which was aimed at these kids. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, a few minutes ago, they were listening to Hallelujah by Can. They don't have to hear nonsense. 
Right. They, you know, people will understand complexity and they also, people like anomalies, which is why when the Neptune started or Missy Elliott started, these are weird records mm-hmm. and their weirdness is their accessibility. So yes. things that are accessible don't have to be primary colors. You can deal yeah. with complexity and still be accessible and you can deal with weirdness. You can deal with, mm-hmm. you know, pushing people where there's going to be like a movie like Inception or whatever. These can be hits and still be weird. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, then with artists, you know, when I was working with, say, um, uh, The Killers or U2, I would mm-hmm. put on a Felakuti record. And yes. some of these records are 15 minutes long. And, you know, everyone's waiting. When is he going to start singing? It's like, it could be 10 minutes before he feels the band are ready for him to sing. But we're right. so used to getting to a chorus in a minute yeah. that, you know, it's like the intro to Lust for Life. Wait for it. And mm-hmm. you know, it's the waiting of it makes it kind of um, genius. It, you know, it can be great. I was doing a, doing a record with Neil Diamond a few years ago. And we were working on this mm-hmm. song. It was quite a long song. I had a dream we were out on a meadow. Just you and me lying out in the sun I knew that somebody would soon come to get you Was hoping that maybe I could be the one Baby, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be yours? Do that I want to be Like I never knew it before And now everywhere I go we were listening to a playback of it, and he said, um, it's very long. And myself and Don Wise were working together on it. And we said, yes, it is very long. Should we cut it shorter? And he said, no, we should make it longer. And I, and that's the can idea. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that's like Neil Diamond compa- sure. and, and the band can, but there is a, there is a uh, tendency to not linger long enough in a thing for it to become something. So you're always kind of getting taking things out rather than adding length in. Sometimes if you if you just like the Fela Kuti thing, if you if you know the song is 16 minutes, it's a commitment and you mm-hmm. something's going to happen to you physically if you mm-hmm. wait 10 minutes. Or like um music for 18 musicians by Steve Reich. Mm-hmm. If you oh, know, if you, if it, so if it's three minutes, you can go, okay, this is three minutes. This is going to be like eating a donut, like a fresh mm-hmm. donut. I'm just going to eat it. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that's going to be like a tasting menu, you're, going, mm-hmm. you're not going to rush it. Yeah. And it'll have its own pleasure. And I think that's what Neil Diamond was talking about. So stuff like that, you know, when, when uh, people came into the room, I would always play records. Mm-hmm. First thing, I would either play records that I'd just gotten. And sometimes they, were, they might throw people. Like, what has this got to do with what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And it has a lot to do with what we're doing. You know, if you listen to, um, say, um, Grace by Jeff Buckley, that record seems like a guitar record. You know, it's, a, it's an Americana, folky record. Mm-hmm. But it's, 
on the surface, but it wouldn't exist without Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. Good point. You know, mm-hmm. so that's what like it's these it's these cross referencing of mm-hmm. um, of of things. You know, like he's trying to sound like Nusrat, and he's trying to sound like Elizabeth Fraser from the Cocteau Twins. Yeah. I find a lot of times people working in hip hop or working in um, pop or something like that are all drinking from the same pool. Mm. And, you know, if you listen to Bulgarian choral singing, mm-hmm. um, that can really provide you with a solution to a problem that you're having with a rock and roll song. Yeah. You know, I find the more diverse records I work on, the more solutions I, I amass to potential problems. So, so back to Telefiche. So how did that start with, with all my digging back into why I'm doing this and, 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 and then without sending to like, this is Dr. Phil or Oprah. I realized how lucky I was to get access to these people in this room mm-hmm. and then to be able to perhaps remind them. Like I remember speaking to, I think it was Brandon from the killers asked him about the last gig that he bought a ticket to and was up the front. I think I'd just been to King Gizzard. Mm. And I was moshing in the mosh pit, and it was exhilarating and amazing. And, um, you know, I up to that point, I had gone to gigs as research. You know, I'm working sure. on something or I'm working with a band. And then my kids came, came of age where we'd go to gigs. You know, we'd go to Desert Days or we'd go to, mm-hmm. you know, down to Echoplex, whatever. And then I thought, damn, this is exactly what I, I, um, I need and I was missing and what I enjoy, you know, like – middle-aged man jumping around the front <laughs> of the thing, but that's what it, that's what, that's, that's, that's what it's about. for. Yeah. So um, I was asking, we were talking about, uh, with Brandon, talking about a song. And um, I remember the excitement that, it, that an audience feels that a band isn't aware of um, when the lights drop just before they come on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're listening to the music that the, that the sound engineer is playing. And then suddenly there's a, there's a lull in the silence, the lights go down, and there's a massive intake of breath. And at that moment, as an audience member, anything can happen. You don't yeah. know what's about to happen. I know the band are feeling something completely different. They're feeling anxiety and fear and mm-hmm. the challenge of entertaining this expectant audience. But there's something in that little moment that's really important. And that is, that, so that can be the same when you drop a, a needle onto a record. When you pull it out of the sleeve, it doesn't happen so much when, with streaming, but when you do pull the record out, it does happen. So anyway, all these things just reconnect me being what it means to be a fan of music. So along with that, I started to behave like a fan. And if I liked a record of somebody's, um, I would find them and tell them. So that meant, you know, DMing people on Instagram or um, finding somebody that knew them you know, like a manager or an agent, or, you know, you can, mm-hmm. I found with famous people, a lot of the times their, their email address is just their name at gmail.com. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so I, yep. so I emailed people and uh, that's how I ended up working with a lot of the people on my solo record was I just, I was going to ask you about that next. Yeah. yeah so, I, so, so it's just like, I'm going to contact people. I'm going to say, I love your record. And um, I think the first one I, Contact was a, a, an artist called Sneaks from Baltimore, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I um, bought their album. And I ended up just buying loads of it and say, so "Give them to my friends. You got to hear this record." And I 
DM them on Instagram and I said, you know, just this is like my eighth copy of this record. And I keep on giving them away. If you ever, I've got a studio. If you're ever in town, you want to come by studio, you can free studio, you can do what you want in it. I don't have to be here or anything. Just, you know, um, thank you for making this record, whatever. And then, you know, we, I said, uh, I sent her music and uh, struck up a, a, not a friendship, but a, a working respect friendship kind of thing, mm-hmm. a usual. And then, so that started going through a lot of these records. And then we're, I, I am heading to Telefish, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, we'll get there. <laughs> so, so through working with REM, you know, lots of bands that I work with, I work with regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I do a few records with them. I'm lucky enough to do that. And with REM, obviously, uh, they stopped at some point, but I remained friends with all the band members and their families. And so I work with Peter Buck a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we play in a band together. And, Tired uh, Pony. I remember Tired, Tired Pony. Pony. Yep. And um, we do other stuff together. So he was making a record with a guy called Luke Haynes from The Auteurs. Mm-hmm. I was visiting Peter in Mexico, and he said, I've just done this record with Luke Haynes. And I said, that sounds great. Can I do a mix? I hadn't heard the record. He sent me the record and I thought, I don't know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't really mix it because it's so raw and any kind of attempt at making it sound better would be disastrous. But I had already committed to mixing. And then I thought, I'm going to do what I imagine if Lee Scratch Perry grew up in 1983 in New York and was just getting into early hip hop and electro. What would he do? So I um, I decided to not listen to the record. I listened to one song, and then I just looked at the multi-track. I didn't know how to use Ableton at the time. I thought, well, I'm, this is a good opportunity to learn how to use Ableton. And I'll just put the whole album, all the multi-tracks, into Ableton, into a big session, and just cherry-pick bits. Guess this bit might be a verse of uh-huh. a vocal, and then not listen to it not listen to it in context. And then I chop it into chunks. I chop it into time. And then I reconstructed an album like Humpty Dumpty and the egg mm-hmm. from the stuff. Anyway, so they liked it. And, um, supposedly Luke doesn't like anything. So, so he liked it. And, um, he is friends with Carl Coughlin. Oh, um, so, um, your partner on telefish yes, for anyone who doesn't yes, know. Yeah. I sent this stuff to, to Luke and Luke said, uh, a friend of yours said, says, hello. And I said, who's that? This is email. And he said, Carl Coughlin. And um, I hadn't met Carl Coughlin since 1982. Whoa. My very first gig that I'd seen when I was 10 or something was um, Susie and the Banshees, supported, oh, yeah. by, supported by a band called Micro Disney. Mm. And Carl was the singer in Micro Disney. They were a five-piece first, and they were a two-piece, and then they got bigger again, you know, like more people. Anyway, um, I didn't know who Micro Disney were at the time, and uh, it was my first experience of the energy of punk band and, and uh, art punk band, you know, and it was amazing. And then, like three years later, I did my own first gig. Um, I was 13 or 14, and uh, I started a band I say band, it was just me and cassette machines. I was mm. doing stuff that was a bit like the Dorothy column or Young Marvel mm-hmm. Giants. Sure. And my first gig was supporting Micro Disney. Call. Oh, my gosh. So, wow. um, and I was a ridiculous fan. And it was their last gig in Ireland before they moved to London. And I didn't see him again. So, out of the blue, 
um, Luke introduced me to Carl and we were on an email and Carl said, I hear you've made a record with Luke and he likes it. That's the first time ever that he's liked something. <laughs> and I thought, this is my opportunity. Um, I usually, when I meet people, I say, do you want to make a record? Mm-hmm. That's like within a few seconds. Do we make right. a record? Do we make a song? <laughs> and um, I said it to him, do you want to make a song? And he said, sure. It was the middle of COVID. And I thought, great. Uh, and I had a backing track for a song that I had done. And um, I sent it to him. And about a day later, he sent it back to me, finished. And that was the first one. I said, you want to do another one? And he said, yeah. And then, then we um, realized we had an album. Uh, on the way without meeting each other. It was very interesting. We connected over. Um, my kids are, I've got two, two, two children, two adults now. And um, they think I'm unusual. I mean, I am weird in, 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 in that I'm not like a normal um, dad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think, why am I so weird? Like, why, what, what about mischief appeals to me? Mm. And also, you know, I'm a, um, I'm a little contrary. Uh, I'm contrarian. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, and I'm filled with dissent and, and, and just troublemaking, you know, if Uh there's a way to upturn the cart, I I will, will. you know, uh, and it's, it has suited me, especially with this production thing that I've been doing. When I, when I started working with you two, I think my role was to upset them, Mm -hmm. upset the process. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they were working with Lily White and, um, my role, I guess, I found out was to come in and be the. Why, why don't we try this? Or why, you know, uh, I guess Eno had, had had stopped working with you two, and they were looking for somebody to come in and just be a little troublemaker. Right. Um, so anyway, so so my kids were wondering why I was so odd, and I was wondering that too. And then I realized it's got to be my. There's an Irishness. There's a, there's a kind of a way that Irish people have of um, of being disrespectful to your face without you knowing it. Mm. You know, they, they manage to um, just be a little bit mis- mischievous mm-hmm. without, 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 without knowing. Anyway, so it's, it's because the, I think the structure of Ireland, the church, and, mm-hmm. and when I was growing up, was very um, severe and had controlled schools, controlled healthcare, controlled the television and the radio, and controlled the, the there were the censor board and the kind of police. Mm-hmm. They encouraged people to police each other. So the Catholic faith forces you to be a little rebellious. You have to figure your way. Give it gives you a tangible thing to fight. Mm-hmm. And um, to fight against, to push against, and it, it creates a little bit of Samuel Beckett style humor mm-hmm. to exist within these strict, uh, strict framework and I then cause a bit of trouble. Yeah. So anyway, this is the, these were the conversations I was having with Cahill where we would talk about Irish television because it it was it was in essence it was trying to not be English, mm. and it had no money. So to not be English and have no money, you had to buy unusual TV shows. So they have like Eastern European animation that were, you know, from the 60s or 70s that were just animation, but they weren't aimed at children, but they had nothing else to show. So they would show for children, but these were really um, subversive things. And they'd show Harold Lloyd and Laurel Hardy. Mm -hmm. 
And then these homemade TV shows and then things like The Angelus, which is at 6 p.m. every night. Um, a picture of the Virgin Mary would come on and they'd have ch- church bells and you're supposed to pray. So, so it was all this kind of weird stuff. And we decided to play with that. And Ireland never industrialized ever. So mm. it went from being an agricultural country to a tech country. Yeah. It's none of the, none of the bits in between that country, uh, you know, modern countries usually have. So from the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, it was primarily in recession and um, it didn't industrialize. So we were, we were going from agricultural to tech mm-hmm. without any uh, decompression chamber. Yeah. So it resulted in oddness and, yeah. um, and kind of a, an outsider perspective on, on, on New York things and music from New York. And, and you know, so bands like Micro Disney, Five Get Out of the Sea, they were all kind of unusual and funny to the Brits because they had this, Almost Captain Beefheartian take on, oh. on 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 things, and within that there was also a kind of a mocking of hipness, uh-huh. like an English idea of hipness. Or so anyway. So that's what all the things we talked about with Telefish, and the name came from. Again, it was mischief. We were taking a post-punk band's name, Television, television yeah. and we decided, oh, we'll just call ourselves that. Mm-hmm. Which is drawing attention to a time period, and also the differences that you know the contrast between American television, yeah, and Irish television. So I love that. You know, so the the logo we use is a Bridget's cross, mm-hmm. which also is a subversion of a pagan symbol that that was taken into Catholicism to turn into the crucifix. That then the national television broadcaster then turned into a their logo, and they still use it. Mm. So it's this kind of weird pagan symbol that got adopted by Christianity, got adopted by propaganda machines, mm-hmm. the television, the radio, and then then it would show Starsky and Hutch. So it's this weird a through line that yeah. goes from pagan agricultural thinking through a kind of Nazi propaganda similar yeah. to the way Kraftwerk uh, leaned into the record radioactivity and mm-hmm playing with nuclear the nuclear power and propaganda from the Nazis. So the, mm-hmm. like the radio on the cover of their album, the Crawford Radioactivity, is the standard Nazi radio. Mm. So the lyric is either about Nazi propaganda, propaganda now, or nuclear power. So we kind of copied that look, tone, and then give it a very Irish perspective. Anyway, that's the long answer <laughs> to how television started. The whole history. Something I wanted to ask you about, you touched on a couple of times in here, your, the sort of dissatisfaction or the restlessness that you seem to feel when you make music. My understanding of your most recent solo album, The Jack Knife Lee, is that that was the, that was the inspiration for this.
collection of things like the things you were like the songs you were making with snakes or Beth Ditto or uh, Mike Eagle or whatever that um, didn't seem to fit anywhere else. It seemed too weird to go on someone else's album or on something else. So you compile it all into your own solo album. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's why I called it the Jackknife Flavor. It's a bit like the uh, third Velvet Underground album mm. where I, they just put the on the front. Uh-huh. But yes, it was a collective thing. So, and I went from um, being a facilitator to being a collaborator. Uh-huh. You know, that, so being a producer is being a facilitator. You know, if somebody has an idea and you try and realize it, that's fine. And I usually try and push people in my production work, you know, let's, let's push this a bit further. What would happen if we did this? You know, speaking of, you know, some of these post-punk records, when I got involved with music, like another record I'm making is with um, two of my heroes because, you know, I, I, I am, this all will circle back in. Mm-hmm. When I was saying I contacted people that I liked, they were people that were important to me. Like I've been very lucky to work with heroes before, like the cars and REM and mm-hmm. U2 people that I, I, that were very important to me. So with that in mind, I, I, I reached out to people that I became fans of. So like Cahill and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, newer artists like snakes, but also other ones. So, my first gig was Susie and the Banshees, the first gig that I saw, and I was a big fan. The thing that struck me in that gig was uh, the drum, the drum kit. Uh-huh. I was a big fan, a big fan of the Slits, and Budgie played drums at the Slits mm-hmm. and the Banshees. So um, when I was producing REM, we were recording in Hansa in Berlin, and at their last performance, we knew it was going to be like this is the last time REM will play together. So we put them into the big room where. Bowie recorded Heroes, you 2 recorded Acting Baby, and we record a live session, and we just bring some family along. Anyway, at that recording session, somehow Budgie showed up. Mm. And I, you know, I, I was completely starstruck because I was an insane fan of his. I love and him. He's amazing. Yes. Anyway, so we did, the, we did the performance, and that was the end of R.E.M., and it was very sad. But that night, I went out for a drink with Budgie. And even then, I'd said to him, can we make a record? Mm-hmm. Do you want to make a record? Like, we'll make a drum record, like three yeah. drummers. Yeah. Three drummers, and I'll play a synth. And um, we picked three drummers, and we had three drummers in mind. And he said, yes, let's do that record. And then he sent me an email. and never heard back from him again. And um, then, accidentally, I became friends with Lowell Tallhurst from The Cure. He's been on here before, too. He's yeah, so guy. He, he's great. So he said... Uh, I'm working with Budgie. We're making a record. And a podcast. They have a podcast. Now. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. yeah. We're making a record. And I thought, this is my chance, my three drummer record. So so we started doing that. We, we're near, we, we finished it. And Bobby um, Gillespie from Primal Screams on there too, right? Yeah. James yeah. Murphy. Well, he Bobby's a drummer. Oh, okay. James Murphy from LCD. He's a drummer. Oh. Idols. Oh, uh, sure. Starcrawler. Oh, yeah, talk about drummers. There you Pan, go. Amsterdam, Pan Amsterdam, um, Lonnie Holly, damn what? it, I can't remember. That's okay. What's it called? When's it coming out? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea what it's called either. Yes, yeah, so 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 the, I, I ended up making a lot of records at the same time, and it's really just calling people up and said, you want to make a record? So so I, now all the records I, make, I seem to be making are all these weird collaboration records mm-hmm. where I'm 
calling people and said, you want to make a record? Mm-hmm. And that is happened. That how, with, oh, sorry. Go ahead. That happened with the Rokia Kone record, you know. Um, that is beautiful. I didn't know you. who she was, but I've been listening to it nonstop since you sent it to me. Jesus, her voice at the end of Nyan Yan or whatever it's called yeah. is just soars to the heavens. It is so beautiful. Yeah, she's amazing. She's one of the great singers. You know, um, when I was talking about Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan, yes, um, who, when I was a kid, I watched him. I just was on, looking at TV one night, it was late at night, and it was a BBC, BBC TV show, and there was something amazing on. There's a big, large man sitting on the ground surrounded by other people and he was singing and time stopped for me. It was just the most amazing thing. And it was Nusrat. And um, this is pre-internet. So I didn't know who the hell this guy was. It took me years to find out who he was. Anyway, that record was done with a guy called Michael Brook, who is a great producer. And that record came out in real world. They made two records, Night Song. And I can't remember the name of the other one. Anyway, it was, it was this combination of Nusrat doing quality singing uh, with Michael Brook, who was, um, he's a guitar player. He invented the infinite guitar that Edge used on With or Without You. Mm-hmm. But he's produced a lot of records. He's become a really, uh, uh, he's become a really good film composer. Anyway, I always wanted to not make a record like that, but have, the, have a record that had the same kind of impact. That mm-hmm. wasn't, it was neither a European Western take on global music mm-hmm. or you know, a lot of times there's a colonial um, appropriation of yes. when, when Western people go to Africa and they, you know, let me put some beats on your stuff and you yeah. open up. And, you know, those records are fine. I just, they're not for me. So and that wasn't what the Michael Brook news record was. It was something I else. have that night songs. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, again, uh, just just for joy and because it's not utilitarian Western rock, you please like me music, you mm-hmm, know, uh, mm-hmm. please hit the, please hit the like button music mm-hmm. that permeates that button mm-hmm. is, on Facebook and Instagram is really uh, altering um, the way we make music in, in, in the West. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a shame. But anyway, so I, I, I kind of started listening to music that I didn't understand or, 
so that was, you know, listen to a lot of Brazilian bossa nova from the 70s or nice. the Japanese environmental music, just yeah. stuff that I don't really know anything about. And it's all new and exciting for me. So um, with that, um, I came upon uh, a group called Les, Les Amazon de Afrique. Okay, so um, through my, um, my production work, I've made really good friends with people at Universal Audio because I've been using their stuff from, from, you know, from since I've been making music. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they're, they're a, a player in the story. And then I listened to Les Amazon de Afrique, which is a group of women from uh, West Africa, singers, and they're extraordinary, just incredible singers. And through my friends at Universal Audio, they knew that I liked this group and they were they they had some competition for you know it was a remix competition for for producers new producers that you would remix a lay amazon d'afrique mm-hmm. record and uh, you'd win some equipment and they asked me if i wanted to be a judge so it was myself and another guy i can't remember who the other guy was he was like um he could have been a kendrick lamar producers mm-hmm. anyway it was, it was somebody pretty cool Anyway, they, uh, I knew the track that, the, that we were judging. And on, on the track, there wasn't any guitar. But on the remix, there was a new guitar track, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It wasn't high life. It was kind of Malian type of fluid guitar, but it wasn't that. And I called up. I said, who the hell is playing the guitar in this thing? It's not on the record. And then, you know, everyone passed me on to somebody else. And I eventually got in touch with this woman called Valerie, who was French, lives in Portugal. And she said, I know the guitar player. His name is Salif Kone. Mm. And I said, does he want to make a record? My usual thing, you want to make a record? And she said, well, he's playing on this other, he's playing with this woman that um, I can send you their stuff. And uh, it was a woman called Rakia Kone. And they had, they had recorded some ideas, but there wasn't any songs as such. And it was very, roughly recorded and this was in the middle of uh, covid you know i was locked mm-hmm. down and i had already before covid because of my new process of working i had already stopped going to studios anyway and i was encouraging people just to send me stuff so i could you know if i'm playing these keyboards i could do it without boring them and most of my big breakthroughs with artists you know when I, i'm not talking about like a personal or emotional breakthroughs like sonic breakthroughs or, or, or songwriting breakthroughs have come when they haven't been in the room mm. because you know part of i'm trying to keep everybody upbeat and entertained when there's a room full of people the room is only as good as the most tired person in the room mm. so so you know if, if i do anything that's boring or laborious it takes a while then i'm losing people and if i'm losing people then their enthusiasm goes so when i need them to to spark up and like add something mm-hmm. I won't get them. So I find I get up at six in the morning, seven in the morning, and I come in here and I just start to tinker before I um, have any plans. I make noise and, you know, see what happens. Mm -hmm. So before COVID, I was working this way anyway. And then with the lockdown, it really helped me take my time doing different things. I started making more records than I did. And then I could also work in multiple records. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could experiment more. So I said, just send me the recording of Rukia and we'll see what I'll do. 
they sent me the recordings and I arrogantly or naively or both said, you know, yeah, I can do something with this. Not realizing that there's no songs and each jam is like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't speak their language. They don't speak English. They don't speak French. I don't speak mm-hmm. French, but they're our common yeah. our liaison uh, is French. And um, I can't ask anybody any questions. I don't know what the songs are about. Interesting. And I, and I don't know what the time signatures are. I don't know anything. And I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I decided that I was going to do the record the way I did the Luke Haynes and Peter Book record, is that I was going to just dismantle the whole thing, just listen to the vocal, chop it up so I could, so I could loop it. So it meant I had to find a time and a time signature that worked. Sometimes it was in... You know, they're not playing in 4-4. Sometimes they are, but it might veer off into something else. So then I realized that, well, now if I chop the vocal up and the vocal is 20 minutes long and every syllable I have now moved, that means if I play it against where the music was, it's not going to line up. So then I had to do every, every noise that was there also chopped into syllables. So it was like, like Uh these little syllables. Yeah. So it was very laborious. And then I realized once I'd done it and I picked tempos or I was going to pick time signatures once I figured out what they were, you know, then I realized everything was modular and I could take a bit of this track and I could add it to this track. And then I could just change chords and I could do that. So once I figured out the system that, uh, and I knew it could work on one song, then it, it, it could um, work for an album. But I and they trusted you to do this. They, they said, do care. whatever, dismantle our music however you want. Just tell yes. us. If it didn't work for them, they were just going to dump it. You know, true, they, didn't, true. they didn't care. So I did one and they just sent me another one. And that's all I heard. I just used to get another track. You know, in the middle of the recording, there was a coup in, in Mali. And there was a curfew put in place. So Nyanyan, that song that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that was recorded the night of the coup. Oh. So basically the country was overrun and by, by the military and they, we couldn't record anymore. So then we just had bits of her singing. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I embarked on this project or process, I had no idea of the quality of her voice. No. All I knew was the guitar player. And then I got the first song. And I thought, this is pretty cool. You know, I like this. It's, it's, um, it's something here. The first track, I can't remember which track it was, but I just did something odd. Didn't yeah. do, I didn't do beats. I didn't want to be all beat guy. And uh-huh. you're welcome to Western beat music. Yeah. Um, so I did something that I just played keyboards. And because they were jamming, I decided to behave in the same way where I would jam and then treat me the way I was treating them, which is just yeah. find good bits and do no programming and just react to them. And then we got to the end of the recording. I never heard anything from anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we had no record label at the time. And then Real World picked up the record. When I'm in that mode, I don't, I'm not, I don't engage the critical uh-huh. critique part of my brain. I'm just reacting. Um, I'm not, so, so I'm not even thinking. Um, so I didn't question the quality of it. I just felt it was, I'm going to buy this record. Yes. This is the record I've wanted to make. Yeah. And um, I'm finding it very difficult to leave the room because yeah. there's something bothering me. Like I, you know, when usually when I'm, presented with a problem, a song problem, it's a great thing because it's probably like I get a high from it, like people get from playing computer games or from playing sports. Like I've got to figure this out. 
and the solution will not be simple. It's never going to be um, something uh, something clever. It's going to be something that's wrong. I'm going to make a mistake, and then that will be the solution. Or I'm going to do something really radical or really bold. Or when I'm saying irreverent, I don't mean that I'm not respecting mm-hmm. the artist's work, but I have to be willing to throw everything out sure. and start from scratch. So usually those things happen. And that with this record, it was all of that all the time. So I never really stopped to think, is this a good record? And nobody was giving, nobody gave me feedback either. Yeah. So it was one of those things where I just, I wasn't going to expect critique, feedback, a uh, applause or just yeah. rejection. I wasn't expecting anything. And that's pretty much the way it is making records for me now. You know, I haven't worked with a record label in a long time. I haven't spoken yeah. to a record label in a long time. So it's really just myself and the artist. And they, you know, when I made the new Modest Mouse record. I ask you about that. That was a similar process. They made a record or were in the process of making the record with Dave Sardi, who's, you know, he's great. And um, it was in the middle of lockdown or the end of lockdown. And they said, can you have a listen to the songs and see what you would do? Usually when I get like a track, an MP3 or a WAV file, I don't like to listen to it. I like to hear the multi-track because then I don't, then I don't, like I usually mute the drums immediately. And um, I just listen to the vocal and maybe one other instrument. And I go, okay, what's what's the song, I guess? So, mm-hmm. you know, um, like I also just about the idea of the song. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that believes the song is king. I yeah. don't. Huh. Sick, of, sick of them. Like that like a song has to be able to play it on acoustic guitar before it's good. That's total bullshit. <laughs> like people say that's a test of a good song. No, it's not. It's not the test of a good song. It's the test of a song. Yeah. But like Milkshake by Khalees, one of my favorite songs of all time. Me too. Play that in acoustic guitar, you'll get booed off the stage, off right. your coffee shop, folk night. Right. Well, it's an amazing song. Yes. Or um, Donna Summer, don't play yeah. that to me on an acoustic guitar. I want the 18 minutes with, the, yeah. with all that stuff. I don't need it. Or Fela Kuti. That's yeah, such a... Exactly. Uh, so, I don't, so when I'm talking about a song, I'm not, I don't mean... What's the structure I'm, I'm talking about? Does is it something that I haven't heard before? Like, am I? Is there something fresh in it that that's going to alter me or alter <sighs> my take on whatever what love is or whatever? Yeah. So, um, 
So modest mouse, they just sent me stuff. See what, see what you can do with this. And uh, I took the same approach. Okay. I'm going to just uh, see what I can do. And, you know, I, I, my trajectory through music has been unusual in that I started off as a solo artist with tapes, you know, cheap electronics, whatever I had, home organs. Then I joined a band. Then I became a DJ. Then I, then I um, did remixes. Then I um, did TV music, music for kids TV. Then I started doing remix again. Then I started doing bootlegs, mashups, some film music. Then I became a producer and then, you know, all the other stuff happened. So all along the way, I've picked up skill sets, you know, mm -hmm. from working with bands, recording live to tape mm -hmm. to remixing. And somewhere in all that now is what I do. I understand studios and I understand that I don't like them, that it's not mm -hmm. a fear. I used, to be, I used to be afraid of the space because it was so, it was so overwhelming and intimidating, that big desk. And I, and I knew I wouldn't understand. It's like me going into a operating theater and there's a body with, with somebody open, there's a body is open and they say, you know, do your stuff. And I go, I, I don't know what's in here. Yeah. You know, so I think I feel recording shoes the same way. And I thought maybe it's something to that inability of my inability huh. to um, master it. Yeah. And then I said, well, it's actually not my skill at all. And my yeah. skill is being an amateur, making it up as I go along. Um, so I'm not, I'm not great in studios. And then as I understand how bands work and how, how weird they are as groups, uh -huh. you know, that, that, that they're really more stressed than families as a, as a dynamic, you know, it's yeah. uh, families have a, an inherent love for the most part. Mm -hmm. Bands are thrown together through, through wanted ads or, um, you know, it's a difficult thing. And then I understand the, uh, this is going to have to work in a club. It's going to have to work in the radio and, you know, this is technology. And so, but I, I, the bit I enjoy now is, is, um, being exploring. Yeah. So to modest mouse was, was, was one of those things where I'm just exploring. So, um, and that was the same with Rokia record and Telefiche. What about and James? You James may have seen, again. I had Tim Booth on here a few months ago and they're one of my favorite bands ever. And I was very, still am very effusive about this new album that you did, All the Colors of You. Better wake up, my love. Get up. It's time. Time to get out of Dodge. That case won't fit the car. Racing. We're racing down to those beautiful
I think yeah. it's their best since the Eno days. And um, is it, you talk about being more selective with who you work with and only really, it sounds like you're really only gravitating to the things that inspire you. Was there I something never, about James that I, inspired I, you? I, I didn't know James at all. Oh, um, really? Not really. I knew some hit singles, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I never, I never really heard them. Mm. Um, and that wasn't, I didn't avoid them. I just, they were just always on the, you know, I was doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew they were big. And um, we knew some of the same people recently. Mm-hmm. And Tim, the singer, is a, a neighbor. Was a neighbor. Oh yeah, that's right. He's in Topanga Canyon too, and um, during the said, wildfires. Yeah. So a few years ago, somebody said you should meet Tim, and I didn't. You know, I was doing another record, and I never got to meet him. And then this time it was COVID lockdown. I just got my um, vaccine, and somebody said, you know, do you want to meet Tim? You come around, and I thought I'm a bit nervous because I hadn't met anybody mm. in a long time. And he came around and he just started talking. Um, usually when I get talking to somebody, that means I'm going to work with them mm. because um, I've said yes to a lot of records without hearing any music mm-hmm. because if I find the person interesting, it's like, do you want to spend four months or three months in a room with this person? Yeah. And that's a huge thing for me. And then it's not, it doesn't really matter. Also, it doesn't matter what records they've made before. That has no bearing in, re- in the record we're about to make. Right. Because what I've found with a lot of bands, the way they sound isn't by choice. Mm. You know, they, a lot of times bands just don't know how to sound another way. Mm. So I figured that out a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago when I was talking to a band, I can't remember who they were. It was Block Party, I think. Oh, and sure. I, was asking, I was asking the singer, you know, if, if we weren't, if there wasn't a drum kit there and everybody wasn't waiting for me to count to four, what would the noise be that you would like to make? Mm. And he said to me, it would be um, Missy Elliott thing. And I thought, okay, let's start there. So we did, um, it was the prayer. So he said, I, you know, I want to sound like, I would like to do a thing that sounded like uh, Amory, one thing, and uh, some Missy Elliott song that was happening at the moment. So I realized that bands sound the way they do because they've gone from a rehearsal room to live to a studio, 
and they've never thought there's another way of recording. Mm. I didn't know we could record a different way. So the way bands sound doesn't matter to me. The way the records sound doesn't matter to me. If they say, you know, we don't know what we want to sound like, we want to sound something, you want to try something that we haven't done before. That's usually a job I would say yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, if they say to me, we want to sound like the last record was really good for us, so we want to make another one like that, and then we might think of changing. I, the reason why I brought up about 30 minutes ago, Budgie and Lol, mm-hmm. I, was, I was starting a point, like I, 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 and then I lost my thread, but the point was, that when I was coming up through music, post-punk was happening, and every record that a band made sounded different than the previous mm-hmm. record. Mm-hmm. You know, The Cure, The Banshees, anybody, Magazine, The Clash. Like, the difference in 1979 to 1982 in a band's career would yeah. be so huge. Yeah. Like, they, one minute they're, they're kind of punk-funk, the next they're mm-hmm. almost new romantic or something. Yeah. You know, Bowie did every record from Ziggy Stardust to Let's Dance is eight years. Mm-hmm. So every record is different. Yeah. Now, or the Beatles, I'm watching the Beatles Get Back documentary. They don't exist. They, they, they're making records for seven years, eight years. Mm-hmm. So now bands, like, they don't change and it's so yeah. tedious. Yeah. So the reason why I like hip hop or a, a kind of hip hop is because there's also that just keep on exploring like a Kanye record. Mm-hmm. Every record risks abandoning the audience mm-hmm. and then and doesn't care i don't care if you like it it's not for you it's for me so it's, i have a thought about that when you're ready okay so that's why bands um that's you know that they, they're, they're supposed to change and when bands don't i i then i'm into utilitarian keeping the brand in in mm-hmm. place you know Tim james he came up and he said we don't know what we want he played me a song and I thought, in my head, usually when somebody plays me something, if I can hear it finished mm-hmm. the way I hear it in my head, then I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it could be just a voice memo, but if I can imagine it finished with all the bits that I'm thinking, this could be this, we could do this. And then it's, you know, obviously I'm expecting curveballs and things to go off piece and change, or it wouldn't be fun if it didn't. But if I can hear the record finished and I know, damn, we could really do something with this record. So within a few minutes of listening to the James demos, I thought, well, I know what I wanted to sound like. And also, why does a James fan or anybody else need another James record? Like, mm. what? Why, why would you buy another one? Mm. So the only reason why you would buy another one is to continue on that thing that I'm talking about, which is exploration. Like, so if you imagine... The reason why new bands get a free pass, a front-of-the-line pass, all the time is because, do you know what I mean by they get a free pass? They get sure, like, of course. Okay. And the why, why bands on the 14th record do not get a front-of-the-line pass, they're like, oh, fucking hell, another record <laughs> from this lot, is because there's an invisible equation that everyone is, is subconsciously aware of but can't see, which is realized versus potential. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when a band is starting at first, all they have is potential. Nothing's realized. So everyone who listens to it is just hearing possibility. Yeah. They're not hearing any, anything that's there yet. It's like, oh, my God, this is so cool. This is, mm-hmm. you know, without, you know, they're hearing where, the way this could go. And like so much amazing things, like things that sound terrible, things that I like that sound really 
like Sonic, you sound terrible. I am imagining him in a different world, like the first mm-hmm. Strokes record. Mm-hmm. I never want to hear it produced mm-hmm. or better, but because it's so underdone, it allows me to invest my myself mm-hmm. in the listening experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you listen to a band that's figured all these things out and they're in their career later, there's no gaps in it for me as a listener. It's all done. So potential yeah. is now, now the equation is reversed. Mm. Fully realized is huge. Potential is little. So the longer a band goes on, this graph starts yes. to flip. So why am I going to buy the 10th record? Because I know what they're about. Yeah. And for me, you know, when you listen to the late Prince records, you know, Prince's 28th album. If you want and give it time, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, I was, when I said yes to Neil Diamond, I was expecting a record. I wanted to make a record that was going to be completely different than anything he'd ever done before. And to achieve that, we didn't get it, but to achieve it, the original idea for that record was I wanted to get the Bad Seeds to be his backing band, Ooh. which could have been amazing. Some of them said yes. He said no, unfortunately. Huh. But anyway, that's, I made a great record with them. It was good. It is a good record. I like it a lot. Yeah. You know, it was the final Neil Diamond record, and I'm very proud of it. But to make a record that somebody that can surprise people when they think they know everything about this artist is is great. So the James record, I just wanted to really play with what they could do and what and also the things that that helped me in that was that there was going to be no band in the mm. studio. They had given me tapes, demo tapes. And from that, they said, just do what you want. Wow. So again, I'm in this situation, which is amazing for me, is that here is stuff, uh, do, what you, do what you want. And then, you know, when I said about people breakthroughs, about people being in the room, by not having them in the room, it removes the sense literal and, and silly. It removes them from themselves. Mm. So now they're, it removes their processes, their biases. Like when I was talking to Tim, I would, I would have a sound on my R2600 and I put it on a song, I can't remember the song it was. And he said, oh no, I don't like that sound. I don't like those sounds. Mm. And um, I said, why? why you know, what, what's wrong? And he said, I just, you know, I just don't like those. And that always interests me when somebody says, I just don't like those things. Yeah. Years ago, I had the same problem with saxophones you know, sax solos. Mm. And um, I had the same problem with olives, eating olives. <laughs> I just, I had decided that I didn't like olives. Right, right. Long We're time all like ago. That. Yeah. And I decided that I didn't like saxophones. And I forgot that I, mu- I might change mm-hmm. in this whole thing that um, at what point is it appropriate to take out everything that you don't like and do like and reassess it? Like mm-hmm. how often should you do that? And most people never do it. It's just, I don't True. like those things or I do like yeah. those things. So with music and the, with the, the diverse groups of people that I work with from you know, teenagers to people in their 70s or 80s, I have a wide scope of likes and don't likes. Yeah. So you know, if, I have a, if I have a DX7 in the room, which I do, and somebody in their 40s says, oh God, I hate DX7s, that's probably because it's associated with something that they didn't mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, I, if somebody's 16, and they're playing a dick. So they go, what the fuck is that noise? <laughs> right. Then it's like, then I'm suddenly, I'm, I'm going, 
oh my God, I'm, I just heard it from a 16-year-old's perspective. Yeah. I'm not hearing it from my age. I'm just hearing it in a new way. So, so that's, you know, I, 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 um, every so often I take things out that I said I don't like. Mm-hmm. So now I'm trying not to say I don't like anything. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Tim from James said, I don't like that. And then I said, well, let's remove your association. Or he would say to me, that sounds too much like 80s James. And I can easily say, well, I don't know what that sounds like because I've never <laughs> heard it. So I'm saying it just sounds like that sounds pretty fresh to me now. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that seemed to go through the group where they were going, like the things that I was doing, they, if they had witnessed the process, uh-huh. they wouldn't have allowed me because there would have been a discussion like Tim saying, I don't like yeah. that sound. Yeah. I would never have gotten to the point where I may have rejected it or I may have took it into my cassette machine and processed it. Yeah. But it's just that person in the room saying, I don't like that. And just pushing back. Yeah. So challenging that, that. Once that once doubt hits a thing, yeah. it's it's gone. Yeah. You know, um I, I told a friend of mine this the other day. Um in England, you know, we don't eat tur- turkey at Thanksgiving, we eat at Christmas. And I lived in the countryside, never been around as farmers. And one year I wanted to kill my own turkey just because I'm I'm eating it. And I thought, I gotta figure out how this is done. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I ended up not doing it because I was here producing Weezer and mm-hmm. um but my friend, this woman, got the turkey that I was supposed to kill, and she tried to kill it for, for Christmas dinner. And um, she grabbed it and tried to twist its neck around the, the sweeping brush. And, and the turkey was too strong for it and didn't. It just ran away. Yeah. And then she called our farmer friend and said, um, you're going to have to kill the turkey because I can't do it. And the farmer said, you can't kill the turkey anymore because it's inedible because, because adrenaline has gone through its body, making the meat inedible. And I always think that's the exact same way doubt is in a recording session that once it's entered, once doubt and fear has entered a song, it's almost, it's gone into its DNA. It's almost impossible to pull out. Yeah. So if somebody says to me in the room, I don't like it. Like one of the first things I ask people to do entering the room is please don't say you don't like something and don't disengage that part of your brain. Yeah. Like the critic, lose the critic, just let's be creative and let's, let's explore. Because if you start, if you're trying to come up with something and you're listening to the part of your brain that says no, at the same time, you're trying to say yes. You know, you're trying to go, you know, the best ideas are just past the shit ones. Yes. You've really got to, Dig past, get past the ones that are, that are that are cliched and stupid, and just past stupid is kind of could be amazing. It's like part of the reason why I got into a lot of Japanese electronic music. You know, I used to li- I listened to Kraftwerk a lot, and I thought that they were smart and ironic. And then I would listen to Yellow Magic Orchestra, and I didn't get their irony. I just thought they were using the presets. And I didn't get that they're really playing with my perception of what it is they're doing and they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're exploiting it and kind of making mocking me through it. But I didn't like the sounds as well um, because they seemed obvious. Yeah. When you listen to, um, I think on, on your show, D- uh, Daniel Lenma was talking about Sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. The smart idea would have not been to put the flute on the beginning of Sledgehammer because it was the preset and that was the first thing that they played. But the awesome idea was to put it on. 
Yeah. So that's the thing I'm finding now is that the naive or stupid idea when somebody just turns on the preset yeah. or the DX7, they go to that piano that, you know, is Bruce Hornsby or Bon Iver, That's the bit that usually makes people who dislike the DX7 run away, but that's all the more reason. Mm-hmm. Let's see what we can do with it. Like, I love can that. we can we turn that into something that you now do like? I love it. Um, so that's the bit. That's that's you know. So that's the toying that. with stuff that I'm um, let me figure out. let me insert myself here for a second because you've Please. said so many things that I have deep thoughts about. First of all, we don't have to dwell on it, but you touch you touched on something right now that is a very has been for years a very deep philosophical belief of mine. And I may have heard this in a movie or something paraphrased somewhere, but the things we want most in life are just beyond the things we're most afraid of. And I think about that all the time and everything you were just saying about the thing, the break, the creative breakthrough is just on the other side of your doubt, just on the other side of your belief that you don't already like something, the preconceived idea that you're coming into a creative environment with the breakthrough is just beyond that. And it reminds me of that. And so that was really touching to me. There's also a Bowie quote um, about swimming or going out, you know, his metaphor for if you can, you know, something about going out into the ocean. And he said, if your feet can touch the, touch the bottom of the ocean, you haven't gone far enough. Obviously you don't want to go out. So you're, yeah, you're going to drown. Right. But you've got to go past it a bit. And also I found, you know, when the, the way I record vocals is I don't use headphones and there's no vocal booths. It's just people in the room. So I kind of sing in front of the speakers. You know, I'm not the first person to do it. Obviously, you two do that way. Killers and R.E.M. have all worked that way. It just seemed to align with the way I like to work, which is great. But that's a strange thing to do because you're not there, there is no there's no red carpet and announcement. I am going in to sing yeah. and now I'm going to be it's like I'm speaking to you now and now I'm going to sing. It's like there is no buffer between talking and extraordinary. It's mm-hmm. just this thing. It's just this uh, amorphous area where you're speaking about your dog or your mm-hmm. your, your you know your dead parent, and then you're going to start singing something, and it's just going to be you in a room. There's no niceness to it. There's no nicety. So it's like I'm a you know the slot singers go I'm a normal person and I'm not extraordinary and you're asking me to do something kind of ridiculous mm. like I'm a, you know I'm asking them to sing in a certain way or like you know scream mm-hmm. like I'm asking you to scream this part just lose your shit like just jump around the room and say yeah but I'm not at a gig and I'm, you're sitting there and there's somebody else in the room it's very difficult to go from just speaking to doing that but. It be, if you can do it, it then becomes a superpower. Yes. It becomes like this. I Okay, you want me to do it? I'll just do it. Yeah. So certain people I've been working with for a while, they trust me that I'm not going to humiliate them. They're not yes. going to do something that I've asked them to do. And then I'm going to turn Beautiful. around and go, oh, God, you're an idiot. You can't believe yeah. it. Or I'm going to judge them. It's just either a good idea, it's a, yeah. it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. It I sounds good or it doesn't sound good. But so that's the thing, you know, when you, getting past your fear knowing that like for kanye west this is easy because mm-hmm. he has a mental illness that mm-hmm. prevents him from feeling fear or that guy that you know does mountain climbing with no ropes yeah it's easy for him it's like me sitting down there's no fear there's no ability to feel fear but knowing that you're going this is going to be potentially embarrassing i am really frightened to do it but i will do it because you've asked me and i trust you then 
and doing it and then yeah. not getting a good result going, shit, that was actually pretty good. Yeah. You know, asking somebody to rap that's never rapped before. Like when I tried to, I was doing the Killers record, uh, The Man. Brandon is a keyboard player, so he, he's writing chords all the time. You know, you're sitting at a piano, the tendency is to move your hands. Like if you're a drummer, you're going to hit things. It's like it's inevitable. And I'm asking them to not move your hands. Like, let's not change chord because I like Sly Stone and I like the Isley Brothers and I like um, techno. Chords aren't that important. And, you know, um, don't stop till you get enough by Michael Jackson is yeah. you know, relatively a chord-free song. Sledgehammer is a relatively chord-free song. So when I asked, he said, I can't do a song. Brandon said, I can't do a song like that because it's not a song. And um, he said, show me or something, you know, show me. And I pulled out a record, it's uh, Spirit of the Boogie by Cool and the Gang. Nice. I had my sam- record player, my sampler, you know, my... Um, I sampled a loop up, put a beat on, put a bass line on, and I sang something. And I said, there's a song. And he said, no, it's not. That's not a song. And he was right and I was right. No, it wasn't a song. And it was a song. It would be a song if he would sing on it. And it would be a song. I played Michael Jackson. And the reason why Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is a song is because I think it's all the same note, up an octave, down an octave. Da, 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 da. Um, you don't need me to sing that song. You know the song. Um, but he's selling it to me. Or thank you for letting me be myself again by Sly Stone. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I believe this. Um, you know, I totally, I'm singing it and I'm, sa- I'm selling it to you and I totally get it mm-hmm. as a performer. And I'm confident doing it and, and you will like it. Um, and to make that leap from... Brandon being fearful that this isn't going to be a song into being a song required a giant leap in his part. Yeah, yeah. And how I convinced him to do it was I gave him examples of, of, of a song like that from people that he likes. Mm. So Fashion by David Bowie. There you go. Isn't, isn't, there's no chords in that song. There's probably one bit in it that does change, but it doesn't need it. It's just like a little bit of we need to go there to get back to the good mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. But it, that's a leap of um like i remember him saying i can't stand here 
on stage and sing this song. It's just not going to fly. And then, you know, he, he found a way in. Mm-hmm. And once he found a way in, suddenly now he has this new power. The arsenal is bigger and he can do it and he's confident with it and it changes him and now it gives him, gives him more space to do something else. And I found the same thing with Tudor Cinema Club. When, Good one, yes. You know, when um, Alex had, you know, he was very young when he did that first record, All Guns Blazing, mm-hmm. amazingly talented. Um, did the second record. I did that with him. And yeah. then something happened to him and he forgot how to write music. He forgot how to do songs. And that is obviously very scary when you, when you realize I, can, I don't know how to do this anymore. So we had to figure out a way to get him back into doing it. So one was I put him through, I put him through this voice box so he wouldn't, he would hear himself sing like a woman, mm. you know, as a, some old pedal mm-hmm. that was a voice changer. So he suddenly sounded like, not like himself. So he was one step removed from himself. That, and by doing that, enabled him to, to not judge what he was doing. Yeah. Because it wasn't him. Right. And even when he was listening back to it, um, it was coming out of the speakers like a different person. And then once, once he figured out, oh, I can do this, then that enabled him to sing falsetto, which is, you know, not a big deal for most people. For some people, that's a kind of a vulnerable place to I be. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I love them. We saw them in concert uh, around the release of Beacon. great band i so let me in getting ready to talk to you something occurred to me and i wonder what everything you've said it kind of leads up to this theory i have and let me let me finish my thought here so i feel like you so many of the albums that you've worked on the key word that comes back to me is transitional you've worked on a lot of transitional albums for a lot of artists for instance block party going from that post-punk band to something a little dancier a little synthier Weezer going from this hard rock kind of sludgy garage rock band to something dancier and sleeker. There's editors in there. There's there's uh, Taylor Swift, obviously. There's the Hives. There's the Cars. All these bands, a lot of the, uh, Snow Patrol to some degree. You're the guy that's taking them from one place to another place. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that. I don't know if that's your reputation. I, do, yeah. I don't know if I'm way off. But that is a common thread through a lot of what you've done. Yeah, no, I do see myself doing that. I'm um, I'm a way of just finding a new process. Yeah, um, for, for bands. So yeah, no, that's that. I would say that's what I like to do is yeah help help somebody get uh, find new ways of working. Um, so let me let me ask you about a couple of those. So I mean, 
I'm not the world's, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. I've never paid that much attention to Taylor Swift. I should, I know I will. Um, but Red, which I think you worked on, talk about transitional albums. That's the one taking her from this country singer that she has mostly been to more of a pop star. And it's a fantastic, that's actually the only Taylor album I, I own. So how did you get involved on that? Is it a similar thing? Like, let's make Taylor pop and bring in the guy who does that well? Um, I, I I don't think anybody tells Taylor what to do, to be honest ah, with you. you know. mm. um, so how that started was, I think, um, through Harry Styles from One Direction. This was when I was in my uh, writing phase. And um, uh, I cannot remember how Harry Styles... It's, it's like six degrees of separation. I think it was from Ed Sheeran, who was mm. supporting Snow Patrol at the time. Ed Sheeran to Harry Styles, who was in One Direction. And what happened with them was um, I was aware of One Direction. And I, at the time, I went out to Joshua Tree, to the desert. I used to like going out there. And I would take a very simple setup of a guitar, acoustic guitar and my laptop. And I would sit and write songs. And I, um, wrote some acoustic things. It was, you know, very folky kind of stuff mm-hmm. that um, I was interested in at the time. Um, and then I, my daughter, who was very young, very young, and when she was eight or nine, I can't remember, picked a song that I had written from that thing and said, you, you should get One Direction to do that. And I thought, that's insane <laughs> uh, because they're a pop band. So anyway, I sent it to, Harry, who got had been interested in some Snow Patrol things that I'd done. And, you know, I'd, I'd sent some big pop things as well. Big, boring pop stuff. Mm. And somehow he liked this weird acoustic thing that my daughter had recommended that I sent, which was just doodle, doodling, noodling mm-hmm. with um, me la-la-laing. And it was, it was almost like a Simon and Garfunkel beautiful mm-hmm. little thing. And he liked it. And I thought, okay, this is going to be great because I wanted to make folkish music or live sounding folk music. And he picked the song. I thought, great, we can do this. And then Taylor Swift got in touch with it at the same time. I thought, this is the same thing. I want to do a folk record because my, my daughters had gotten into Taylor Swift and it was a big pop, you know, it was a big Nashville pop thing that's very polished. And I, you know, I'd listened to her in the car and I thought it'd be great if she made something raw not quite um like feist but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. acoustic-y different yes. and just kind of like i had written a pop song before with gary from snow patrol and the woman from pussycat dolls covered it oh nicole anyway so nicole thingy scherzinger yeah anyway so i i came to la to record the song and to get her into this the, the song that you know i had done I played her song to the siren by mm. Tim Buckley, but sung by Elizabeth Fraser. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. The, anyway, she uh, said yeah. to me, I know I love the song. I did a cover of it with, with, so I wasn't expecting Nicole Scherzinger to know this mortal coil. Yeah. And I said, great. Cause I really want you to just sing just one vocal, no double tracking. And we just do it live. You just do the whole thing. There's no, uh, and she sang it and it was amazing. I thought, damn, Mm-hmm. Not only is she a great singer, but you know um, we've connected over Cocteau Twins and all this, and mm-hmm. there is a possible way into pop music. Mm-hmm. And by the time the record came out, 
some other producer had come in and, you know, quite, she said, this will never fly. I remember mm. her saying at the end, it's never going to last. They're never going to let me do it. She really liked it. And then by the time I heard the record, there's like 16 tracks that were all mm-hmm. tuned, aligned and everything. Anyway, so I thought it'd be great to do a Taylor song like that and a One Direction thing where it's just kind of them sitting with an acoustic guitar. It didn't work out that way. You know, I think Snow Patrol were at their biggest at the time and we were making this. It was big, I guess, but I, this Wagnerian music, you know, it was mm-hmm. just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Towards the end of the song, there was like orchestras and choirs and it was the sound of the time. And that was the way One Direction's management label wanted to take it. So that's the way that song went. Unfortunately. So you didn't end up writing a song with them or you did? Yeah, I, I have did. to ask because I my did. daughter yeah. is obsessed with Harry Styles. I listened to it I, all the I, time. I did, I, did, I did a song with them and uh, that was... Which that one? Was, it's called Something Great. And that was, okay. the, that was yeah. the weird little folk song. The very beginning... that song is the way I thought it should always be. Yeah. But it didn't go that way. And um, it looked like they were going to take it off the record. And I had spent a long time, I I had flown to Milan, Madrid, Barcelona, London, to get the song finished, try and get them to record like they were. Liam punched Zane (laughs) in a bus to try and get to the vocal. So at this stage, I was just going, whatever you want to get the song done, because if it doesn't go on the record, I just wasted like a month. Yeah. So anyway, I I, I do accept responsibility for the way it sounds, but it wasn't the way I'd intended it sounding. Uh. And something similar happened with the Taylor one, even though it ended, you know, I got to work with Owen Pallet from the Arcade Fire to the string arrangement and uh, Bill Rieflin, wonderful Bill Rieflin who died uh, a couple of years ago from R.E.M., played drums on the Taylor song. What's the Taylor song? Um, the last time. Okay. Find myself at your door, just like all those times before. I'm not sure how I got there. All roads they lead me here. I imagine you are home in your room, all alone, and you open your eyes into mine, and everything feels better.
Anyway, we just re-recorded it uh, a few weeks ago yeah. for the her, her her new version, and it sounds much better. So wow. uh, I'm very proud of the song. It's great. Good. Um, so she sounds close now yeah. to the way I was hoping she would sound on most of Red, but um, she knows what she knows when to do what she's supposed to do when she's supposed to do it. Yeah. Um, I just knew that I was going to be listening to Taylor Swift in the car, so I'd like to make a record that I would like to hear. And now she's doing it, but, you know. I love it. I got to ask you, okay, so we have some Patreon supporters, and um, we've been talking about a lot of things, but I got to throw in some of the stuff. I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and if they want to contribute some questions, they're allowed to do that. Um, One of them, Brian Weingarten, um, wanted to know about an album that I am not as familiar with. It's working with AFI on uh, Crash Love. He says, I believe he joined after the initial tracks were recorded. So how did he, how did you get brought in to work on AFI? Um, what were your first thoughts on hearing the tracks you already, you had to work with? Okay. Yeah. Um, all I will say is poor AFI. Um, I felt so bad for them. Really? So I didn't know who they were. They didn't really, um, I had just moved to LA at the time and they hadn't really, uh, they weren't really happening in England, not in my sphere. Mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't aware yeah. of it. Um, I had moved to the States and I met up with Jimmy Iovine, who was head of Interscope, um, who, who now is probably owns the world. Billionaire. But yeah. he, he, he seemed to make it his goal at the time to split bands up by uh, forcing them to work with pop people, mm. you know, from Weezer to AFI to everybody, every mm. rock and roll band that he had. He thought they should be working with Pussycat Dolls or somebody, yeah. whoever was happening. You know, I kind of, um, I said something to him once that I don't think he got the joke and probably just as well. There's a great scene in The Simpsons where I think it's Homer goes past the local store and sees a sign in the window and says, it says nuts and gum together at last. And I always thought that was Jimmy's idea of getting like, we get a rock band. And we get we get whoever did the soundtrack for Slumdog Millionaire, some Indian musician. Uh-huh. We put them together, and we have two markets together. Boom, yeah. nuts and gum together at last. But you don't. It does. It's not two markets together. It's it's two markets split yeah. into sh- smithereens. Anyway, so with that in mind, I was the hot new producer because I just had a hit with Weezer and something else. And uh, Jimmy thought I should work with the AFI because I'm I'm kind of electronic guy mm-hmm. and um afi's producer had died and then they they went with somebody else so they'd recorded bits of it they'd went with somebody else the record didn't work out then they went with the somebody else's engineer and the record didn't work out so they were on their fourth or third time recording this this, this record This is perfect. Hey, hey. Oh, 
I was given to them, I foisted on them, and um, they had no idea who I was, didn't really want to record their album for the third time. And here's some guy who they don't know or like yeah. forced on them. And um, we went to a studio, Henson, I think, and we finished recording two songs and there was an error on one of the studio made an error on the stuff and we had to wipe it all or it was wiped uh, and we had to record it again. Oh boy. I, so I think they, I don't have fond memories of the record. I don't know anything about the band really. I don't know what happened to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished it. I can't remember anything other than it was painful, okay. but That's not as it's painful for me, but not as painful for them. It must've been yeah. horrible. That's too bad. Um, okay. Another one of our listeners, uh, Michael Bagford asked specifically about the accelerate album of REMs, which is, I love that album. If, in fact, I, I get angry sometimes because I think people have discounted everything REM has done after like automatic for the people. And there are some excellent albums in there. Accelerate is an example of this. Um, he said his understanding is that when you were brought in to produce, you only had a short time to work on it, like a few weeks. And he wondered if a tight timeline versus having all the time in the world changes your approach. If you, when you listen to Accelerate, do you hear, oh, we were on a time crunch, or do you like what you hear? Um, first of all, I, I love that record too. I think it's an amazing yes, record. Me too. Um, I felt completely out of my depth. Really? Producing that record. I hadn't really produced much before. Mm. And the way I produced was in a modular way. You know, I'd done some U2 stuff and Snow Patrol, but I hadn't sat in a room where I'm the producer and the band were recording. It was recording live. Um, and then I was the boss, I guess. So I was recommended for the record by Edge from U2. Um, I was living in England. Peter Buck was playing a gig. They came to meet me and the meeting was was so intimidating. Peter was playing a gig in Oxford Mm. and the whole band flew in and decided to play some new songs for me. And, um, and they were going to, we were going to go for dinner before the gig and and they invited Tom York to the dinner where they all grilled me about what I would do to their record. Mm. And on the way I hadn't listened to REM, a few of the records before the the last few at a time and so that, and not out of time, um, around the sun. Mm-hmm. And I listened on the way up and the train on the way up. And um, so I had an idea about what I wanted to hear from them. You know, I wanted to hear, um, I remember said, I want to hear something visceral and thrilling. Yes. So we, they, so they were all asking me. I was at one side of the table and they were all at the other. And they were saying, okay, well, how did you do this? And I know there was a, there was a difference in, of opinion on how they would work. And I thought the best way of, of achieving the, the record that I wanted to hear was to do it quickly and live, mm. which happened to suit Peter Buck. So he said, great, uh, come to Athens. I went to a demo session and we got on well. They offered me the job and then we figured out how are we going to record this record? And then we thought the best way to do it is just do two weeks at a time. Mm. Because after two weeks, I th- and I found this because at the time I was doing pop sessions and after a few weeks, the energy starts to be, it's reduced, it dissipates. So less gets done and more of the day is spent talking and mm-hmm. chatting. But in that first burst, this is quite intense. 
So we thought if we just worked for two weeks, then stopped, and then didn't see each other for two months, mm. that would give Ch- Michael a chance to write lyrics, mm. which means he wouldn't be doing it in the room with the band were waiting around, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which meant that we couldn't tinker on the sounds. Yeah. I also didn't really want to record a live record and make it sound live. I wanted to um, approach each song as a new song. So that meant stripping putting up the equipment in the morning and then at night stripping it down and putting in new equipment the next day so we couldn't have any way to go back. Mm-hmm. So we would think about the song, say, is this the right drum kit? And then we would prepare all day before the band got in. So we would get tones, unusual tones, and then they would play. We did that with Neil Diamond too. So there wasn't just one setup that did for the record. Every song was different. So when they played live, it was always exciting. And then we would record. So we uh, we did... We did Accelerate in Vancouver for two weeks. Then we went to Ireland for uh, a couple of weeks. Then we went to Athens into a church. And then in the Irish session, we decided to do live rehearsals because the band was saying that everything gets better after they play them live. So we thought, well, why don't, before we record them, why don't we do gigs where, yeah. where we do a five night residency in a venue that holds about 2,000 people? And every night we'll play the album and we pick we do the first ep in total then we do the second album in total then we just cherry pick and you know but yeah. each night we do the whole album that we were recording and also we record it and see can we actually record the album from that session and the idea was that we would practice in vancouver then re- do the gigs re- and the album would be recorded live and then we'd go to a studio in Ireland where we would do vocal overdubs and then go to Athens, Georgia to mix it. That's not exactly what happened because we did, did so much work in Vancouver. We pretty much finished the album in Vancouver in two weeks or less. It was 11 days. Then we had these gigs booked. So we thought, okay, we'll see if we get any more songs in. What can we learn? And then we went to, after that, which was great, that those gigs worked out great. We ended up releasing them as a separate album called Live at the Olympia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to Studio in Ireland for two weeks where we recorded v- different versions of the songs and new ones. And then we went to this church in Athens where they'd done one of their first gigs. We turned this church into a studio. And then we did the same thing again. And then we mixed it in London. But there was no time for tinkering. It was just mm-hmm. all blasts of energy. Mm-hmm. And then there was enough gaps between those sessions that Michael could sit around. You know, it's unfair on uh, the band, the musicians to wait around for Michael to do lyrics. It's also unfair on Michael to expect him to, to change the way he works. I remember saying to him, maybe don't think so like stupidly. I said, don't think so hard about your lyrics. (laughs) And he said, this is the way I work, you know, Uh I, you know, I would sit, I went for the next record. I would sit with him in his house. And we'd spend like 10 days and just sit at a table like this with my laptop playing songs. And we would just, he would do his lyrics in the room. Yeah. Uh, just the two of us. I wouldn't be, obviously I'm not involved with lyrics, um, yeah. but it was, it, it gave him focus that I was there. And so it meant that the tinkering phase was eliminated, you know, overthinking music. The music was recorded live and the lyrics and the singing we could even though he only sings things once or twice, mm. he does like to live with the words and, uh, a while. So, so the record feels like, um, like the way it was recorded. It was very exciting. 
you know, when when we booked the stu- the Irish studio, me, my naivety, thought we could just live together. Mm-hmm. I like residential studios. Why don't we all live together and uh, we'll eat breakfast and we'll have lunch together and we'll have dinner together and we'll do some recording and then we'll, you know, drink together. Mm-hmm. And their manager, Bart, said to me, they'll never stay there. They're all going to go back to hotels in Dublin. And they never left. And we, you know, we drove tanks and we, you know, they had a tank there. and We went shooting, clay pigeon shooting, and we just behaved like kids. And it was so much fun. Yeah. So when I think about those records, that and the next one, we went to Berlin and we went to New Orleans. It was being with each other all the time, eating dinner together, socializing. It was like being in a new band. That's wild. Both those records feel to me like when you're on your first dates with people yeah. and you're getting to know somebody. And everything is new. Yeah. And the records don't feel, they're not backward, even though some people said like, um, Collapse Into Now is backward looking records. No, it's, it's, um, it's probably looking a bit at their, what they've done before, but looking at it with excitement as opposed to how do we sound like this again? It was like, I'd like to do, that was fun doing that. Yeah. You know, yeah. get, let's get Patty Smith involved. Let's get, yeah. you know, let's call Patty and see if she's around. It was more exciting than, than it was exciting for me because I wasn't there when they did other things. So I said, yeah, how'd you do this? Yeah, that's wild. Um, okay, one other uh, Patreon, Carly Anderson asked, well, she just wants to know more about your relationship with Snow Patrol. That's one of, I think, when I look over all your credits, you've been collaborating with them for a while. And I'll tell you, I, I worked at Tower Records. I was a regional marketing manager at corporate tower records when final straw came out and i love that album and i met them at a at a in-store in san francisco and then um and then they just blew up from there you know chasing cars that's got to be one of the biggest songs you've ever worked on that's almost a billion streams on spotify I will say, and I should, I probably shouldn't tell the producer this, you kind of touched on this earlier. It felt a little bit like they were trying to kind of knock me over the head with beauty. Like, look how big and how operatic and how grand we can become. And so I love them, but it was, it was, that drained on me after a while. I will say I pulled on Wildness the other day for the first time in a while and that's got to be their best album i loved it because it was kind of more darker and stripped back to some songs anyway that's a long preamble of me saying you know what is at the heart of your relationship with gary and the band that maintain that continues all this time well when i met them again i didn't know who they were i hadn't, I hadn't heard them so it was really just 
Gary came around, we listened to records and I asked him what, what you know, he listened to, I played some records, he liked those and we bonded over these records we were listening to. And then we just started, the, started recording it and I approached it from Final Straw. Again, I did the same things I do now. This is, I didn't have the, um, we went to a studio, we couldn't afford that much, we didn't have a record label at the time. So we just recorded very quickly and then I took the recordings back and I played with them. Halfway through the recording of that album, the drummer uh, split open his arm, um, uh, ripped an artery, and he couldn't play drums. So I was left with a, um, a problem. How do we make a record with mm-hmm. half drums recorded? And then the answer was obvious. I programmed them. And then once I got there, then I was given that license was given to me. I can now remix their recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, so Final Straw still sounds like a radical record to me. You know, certain things on it are like How to Be Dead and stuff like that. Please don't go crazy if I tell you the truth. No, you don't know what happened and you never will if you don't listen to me while I talk to the wall. This blanket is freezing, it's been out in I basically just remixed Snow Patrol. When we got to the final straw, I know that their um, um, record label thought I shouldn't be producing Eyes Open because I wasn't, I didn't have the experience. So I wasn't producing it. Um, and then Gary came down to my place. I left London at that stage, lived in the countryside, and we were writing songs for Natalie and Brulia. And one night we got ridiculously drunk and we wrote seven songs, uh, seven of which ended up, we woke up the next day and thought, these are pretty good. We probably shouldn't give them to Natalie and Brulia. And seven of those songs ended up on Eyes Open. Wow. At that stage, the your run had gotten big and um, we had gotten a budget for an orchestra and we had gotten more time. So instead of having four weeks to make a record, we now had eight weeks. And I, my skills had shot up. I think um, I learned, I produced U2 and I got over ambitious. Also the band were playing bigger halls. And once you start playing bigger halls, you're under the false idea that to fill the bigger halls, you need bigger music. Yeah. And that, that's what got me into trouble with editors, the band editors. I made a, a record that sounded too big. You know, it should have been tight and small. I was going to ask you about them. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't do that. Anyway, so everything, my, my skills got better. And um, they were playing bigger, big arenas. So we thought it's got to sound bigger. I realize now that the bigger the arena, the smaller you should sound. Mm. But anyway, which is what led to wildness. But so we ended up doing that record, uh, Eyes Open, and it got very big. And then we got to the next record. Uh, which just 
followed on, um, which was called uh, 100 Million Sons. I like that. That got got even bigger. We did a song where I remember there's 80 people singing on it. There was an orchestra. There was um, what if what if the storm ends? It's Mm. a really simple song. And we just thought, let's let's go to town on this. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Gary saying, we're not doing a Chasing Cars. We're not doing a run on this record. Jay-Z, when he was the president of, of Island Records, said to the killers, um, his advice to them as, as the A&R president was, it's the most amazing advice. If you ever need advice in music, use this Jay-Z advice and forget, rip up every other piece of rule book advice, anything ever, anybody will ever say on YouTube, anything, anything anybody will say in Thornton School of Music or Berkeley. And the advice is very simple. On every record, have a hit and make sure it's not like your last hit. Mm. That's it. So I, I always felt the same way. I just never said it as succinctly yeah. as Jay-Z. Anyway, that's why he's he's Jay Z and I'm definitely. Anyway, so we got to that record, and um, you know it was a fine record. We got the record got embroiled in a pissing competition between Interscope and somebody else. And um, when you when you when you're a a band involved with two titans clashing, you will you will suffer, mm. and uh, that happened there. Um, so. It is a complicated thing, but the record yeah. didn't work in the United States. And then from that point, I thought we've got to make smaller records. So mm-hmm. the next record was Fallen Empires. And we did things like um, uh, Called Out in the Dark. It's like we just can't help ourselves. Because we don't know. Dazzling gold With our rainwashed 
which was, you know, I felt and lightning was tighter sounding Snow Patrol, um, tighter, smaller sounding Snow Patrol. And I think um, they're hard for the band to pull off, even though that's why I want to hear them do. I want to hear them play, make smaller acoustic records and um, more intimate things. They're, they're always my favorite Snow Patrol songs. Yeah. But I think I'm in a minority of uh, people that like that prefer those Snow Patrol things. So I, I I feel like my usefulness for Snow Patrol is is probably gone because I think where I'd like to see them or where I see them is more left field than ah, where they where they, where they should be. I I um, I think naturally they will they will have a wider audience mm -hmm. than is appealing to me. I could see um, that. So that makes um, sense. I, I think I, I think I drive them insane. Mm. I think I, I I drive them insane by by pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. So I think Eyes Open is it was an amazing record, and um, I feel I felt Wildness was their best record probably after. Um, I agree. A final straw. Yeah. But. I don't, as uh, you know, my job as a producer is to be in this room and yeah. I don't stand in front of an audience and try and sell those songs. So I don't, know, I don't know how difficult it is to sell a song like A yeah. Youth Written in Fire. It's probably impossible. Um, or, or a song like Soon with, on Wireless, which is one of my favorite songs Gary's done. I know Love he it. loves it. I don't know how that is to sound in front of 10,000 people and trying to sell a good that point. Good point. Okay. You mentioned editors, and I want to talk about that album because when The Back Room came out, that was my favorite album of that year. And I remember I saw them at South by Southwest, and they were the hot ticket that year. And I'll never forget it. I'm in the venue. I had a VIP pass. So my wife and I got in to any show we wanted. And Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads was running around. I think he wanted to produce them or something. The next album comes out, which I am so excited for. And to me, it sounds like the songs aren't there. I still love them and I love their sound and I love what you guys accomplished. But it sounds a little bit like they were trying to figure out what to do next. So when I was talking about transitional albums earlier, this is one that kind of came to my mind. I'm wondering how you feel about that album. I love that record. I feel like I made it sound too big. I think I, you know, uh, when I listen to it. I think it's, uh, it's too big. I, I I made a mistake of going to see them live before I worked mm -hmm. with them, and um, it just sounded enormous. You know, um, mm -hmm. Chris's guitar tone was was vast, so I made it sound too big. 
So I, I feel bad about that. But there are some extraordinary songs. Yeah. I'm just going to look at it. Um, like Smoke is Outside the Hospital Doors is, is amazing. So I... I, I think I would disagree. I always try to, about your taking the song. Let me just see what's on, what's not on here. And end has a start. Um, let me see. Yeah, end has a start. Is so good. As a song, I love that song anyway. Yeah. Okay, my favorite song. One of my favorite songs of anybody Ooh. is "Escape the Nest." You know, it's a, I know it's probably a deep cut, but um, love that. Um, I just think I'm, I'm, when he was singing it, usually when when people when, when I've got an SM7, so it's a microphone, a uh-huh. short microphone. I'm usually sitting here where I am, so I'm facing the screen, and then right behind me is a, is a singer, and I generally try not to look at them because I want them to know that I'm here, 
And when I turn around like this, we're, 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 we're talking, but when I'm this way, um, and I remember I'm looking at the screen and in the screen, I can see Tom reflected in my screen singing Escape the Nest. And I rarely get chills. Like, you know, when somebody's in a room and singing, and that was the time I heard, oh my God. And I, and I, and I um, exploited my power in the situation. I asked uh -huh. to sing it a few more times when I didn't need it. <laughs> because it was just so extraordinary. Wow. Um, but I do love the record and, and I love that band. Good. And then we started, it was one of those weird things, you know, they, they generally don't work with people twice. We started the next record, which I think is a better transitionary record. Flood mm -hmm. did who I just, mm -hmm. Flood is, is, you know, people talk about you. certain producers as being great. Mm -hmm. And I would disagree with most people on the list of great producers, but Flood is, one of the extraordinary producers of a time yes, and um, of any time. And he's never mentioned in the way I hear other people get mentioned. And it's uh, ridiculous. So his editor's record is the record I would have loved to have made. Ooh, interesting. But uh, I didn't know how to, and I tried to, uh, but I didn't. Anyway. It's interesting but, you say that because that's a more synthy album than the other ones. And you did darker. that with Block Party. You kind of took Block Party from that post, to me anyway, for, as a listener, from that post-punk sound to the more synthier or dancey sound. And that's yeah. what editors did on that album. That's interesting. Well, again, I think I, the Block Party record's too big. Ah, and well, I, yeah. Um, okay. I, um, I, I, I love Chance of Towns and the mixer, but I didn't like the mixes. Okay. And sometimes I don't get to say, get my say in mixes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like I... Um, I interrupted. You go ahead. No, no, it's fine. I just so um, I got to work with editors again a few years ago. And uh, we did two songs, uh, black, three songs, Black Gold and another couple. And that was that was a synthy thing that I really liked. I just, my excitement with, with synths and, and humans, it's like David Cronenberg. It's not, I always felt the trouble I had with editors that it was either or. Mm. So my record was guitars, then Flood was synth. And I always wanted to see what happens when it when it's fused, mm -hmm. you know, when it's David Cronenberg. You know, you have this kind of um, moist robot, you know. Yeah. Um, so um, I got to do that with editors a bit uh, a few years back, a couple of years back. So, um, so they're the records that I get very excited about when I don't know what's making what sound. And, you know, one of the big records for me was, um, the first two New Order albums. Yes. It's a really great way of hearing how non-programmed mm -hmm. electronic music, like electronic music that I like is, if you think about Crawford being like the Ramones, you know, there's four guys, they have specific jobs. One guy's playing bass, one guy's playing lead, one guy's playing drums, one guy's singing. And that's the way electronic bands were. And now, and Depeche Mode and a few other bands like that, I still like electronic bands having stations. And I think mm -hmm. editors did that very well in the mm -hmm. Flood record. One guy had a job. And uh, it sounds like it, you know. So um, they're the records that I get excited about when it comes to electronics. Okay, cool. And Telefiche is a bit like that too. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we're looking back at bands before electronic music got... Like when I listen to African music, they do not need four on the floor to dance mm -hmm. on to, and to make me dance. 
you know, if you listen to Francis Bebe or something like that, I'm dancing and there is barely any beat. Mm-hmm. So that's the way it was when I used to go dancing. Um, electronic music was there wasn't a hard four on the floor mm-hmm. that came in with kind of industrial music or body music later. And I still like, I love techno. I love, yeah. you know, uh, jumping around to it, but dance music doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be so uh, dictatorial in its, mm-hmm. um, in its, the way the beats are. So that's the thing in Telefish I'm trying to do is, is loosen up my take on electronics. So I, I am, I am using drum kits and um, sequencers and, you know, old synths, and I am doing it digitally and quantizing things, but I'm trying to make it breathe a little more. And I think so, we're, we're, you know, Flood has always done that as well as their yeah. producer. So when people get that, I, you know, I struggle with Nine Inch Nails, even the Flood records with Nine Inch Nails, because, and this is probably um, wrong terminology, but I find there's a, a certain macho masculinity to nine inch nails that is really off-putting because mm. there's no groove because mm. it's so dictated by yes. belgian body music knights arrive and stuff like that yeah. and the americans american electronic music swallowed whole belgian body music without even being aware of it so electronic music from the united states can be very harsh yeah and it doesn't have the fluidity of say fortet or or say Bjork or something like that. Interesting. You'll find a lot of Bjork's collaborators are not American. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that Americans aren't good at it because they are. There's obviously mm-hmm. amazing people at work here. But there is a fundamental tie mm-hmm. to the grid yeah. that, that, um, that you find. Obviously, Flood was looking for the, for, to flood from that. Yeah. You know, and there is a European way of doing yeah. looser electronics. And I still feel it nowadays. You know, um, um, I know there's a Germanic thing in, in, um, in you know, the Berlin, the Berlin sound has a bit of that um, tightness, but it's still the fluidity elsewhere. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so okay. that, back Good. to others with that. That's why I just, it's the European quality that always mm-hmm. attracted me to it. And I don't feel like I nailed that on their record. I feel like I've taken it to a modern Interesting. Rock. I, I, nice. I love those guys. They can do no wrong in my book. Um, okay. You did L King or Ellie King, right? X's L and King. O's. L's L King. King. I didn't do X's and O's. You didn't. What did you do on that album? And tell us. Oh, I, did. She- I, I did. I did some things in that record, Jeff.
me. Okay. I did that is four she times. legit? I mean, she that song is great. She can sing. I think because she's a woman and she's Rob Schneider's daughter, people probably second guess or wonder if she's for real. What do you think? Elle is one of the great people, full stop. I, I, I love her to bits. I haven't worked with her in a long time. I tried again a few years when I sent her um um, I sent her a, a track. She asked me for my take on something that she was working on. And I sent her something that was a bit like Dinosaur Jr. Mm. And I think I took it too far. But um, that's um, so what she, when she came up to that record, dangerous. She's properly dangerous. You know, <laughs> her records don't sound that way. But, she, you know, she is in Nashville. And Nashville has an, imposes it, itself on, on, on um, it's, like the, it's like K-pop. You know, I, I, good, some good things come from Nashville, but generally there is, it has a sound and a system and it will infiltrate you. It's like a virus, it'll impact you, you know. So um, I saw, I see, not saw, I, I, Etta James and Elle King are the same, same mm-hmm. thing. You know, Elle would get into a fight She'd be, she'd be here, we'd be working, and she would be back, and she would have gotten into a fucking fight the night before and show up, and, um, and we, you know, talk about it. I still have a piece of wood that I used to open my curtains that she had carved with a knife. Um, <laughs> she's, like, proper. She's the real deal. She's legit. I, I think her records, you know, it's one of those things. I had discussions with her record label. This is one of those things where, like, for that record, I didn't agree with the mixes on the on the bits that I did, mm. and there's a drummer that is probably one of the greatest drummers alive, or ever. James Gadson. He played with Bill oh, Withers. Sure. Yeah. So I was doing the L, some some of the Al King record, and I got James to play drums in it. And we were doing stuff. It was just myself, L, and James. I think the only musician. Oh, uh, maybe Jamie Mahobrick played some piano, and. Uh, Sebastian Steinberg played bass. He was in Soul Coughing and did, you know, did the um, Fiona Apple record. So we we got some pretty good dirt going on. And um, she had a hit with some song. I can't remember, X's Nose or something else. And once you have a hit that size, I think it came out before the album, all attention goes there. Yeah. And any deviation from that seems perverse. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think I was the person in the room that was that again, that when you're working on a record with multiple producers and I'm the person of probably loads, all trying to get on this record, you know, we we write songs together and we put put on the record. And if you're the left field thing, you're off the record. You know, if there are multiple producers on every record now, most records, you know, and if that's everyone tells me that system is better than before, mm-hmm. if it was better than before, albums would be better than before. Mm-hmm. But albums aren't better than before; they're not worse, but they're not better than before. Yeah, yeah. So if the if if the system was better, then then records would be better, and you could see it. It's quite, you know you just see it, mm-hmm. but they're not. Mm-hmm. But what happens is everyone's trying to get singles. Yeah. So the so people there are no producers, very few producers left. There are producers of songs, but there aren't producers of artists anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I see exceptions with Phineas and um, Billy. Yeah, 
Phineas produces Billy. He's not producing a song that is trying to get on a record. So yeah. most other producers around are all producing songs. They're all trying to fight, fight each other to get on these records. And that's the problem with L. King's records, mm. is that there's, there isn't a person that is saying, Let's make a record, and yeah. and and your thing will be you. Yeah, it's not that we have a song that goes, and then suddenly the song is the is the bullet, and in its wake will be your your other stuff. That doesn't happen. It's now yeah. suddenly the, the bullet is you. This yeah. this identity that that's that's given to you. Fascinating. Like so that so that so that's the problem of modern production. Whereas um, before, I remember I had this conversation with Rivers. Chromo from Weezer. Um, he has a system of that I disagree with of of uh, writing and recording. I you know I, mm-hmm. I can't work that way. Which is a uh, focus group. Yeah. And um, I he played me some songs and I said this song this song is great this one isn't this song is great and he said I agree with you. But that song is going on the album a bad song. And I said, why? And he said, because the focus group says it should go on the album. And I said, well, focus groups are not right. Mm-hmm. Because if you, oh, you only have to look at their evidence. Like, movies are not better. Yeah. And he, he said, I said to him, focus groups don't work because records aren't better nowadays. Mm-hmm. He said, give me an example. And I said, I don't know, Exile on Main Street. Mm-hmm. If that was given to a focus group now, we wouldn't have the record exactly. at all. No. Anyway, his comeback was amazing. He said, yes, but just imagine how good it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which wow. was great. Well, yeah. it was great. I mean, yeah. I, did find, I did find it funny. <laughs> it but, is. Um, it's very funny. So think people like L. King and record labels. When we were making that record, there were multiple producers on it and there were multiple songs to choose from. And they picked the songs that had the most chance of getting streamed. They weren't picking a deep cut. They weren't like, let's make let's make one hit and then loads of other ones that are just like, if you like her, you might like this. Because yeah. data isn't showing that that's the way things are. But that's not the way I work anymore. I, I want to make mm-hmm. songs that um, that are deeper and not, not deeper, but like better or like that, but just that will, will, will bring you back for more lessons. You know, I generally, I, I've gotten into bands because there is a, a song portal. You know, this is the song that gets me in and it might be the big hit song. And then suddenly I'm in this, I'm, I'm in this world. And there's all this stuff that I have yeah. access to other songs. And they're the stuff that keep me coming back. And um, so, so singles, fine. I, I don't get many singles on when there's multiple producers records because I think I get the, oh, that's interesting songs. So I, when I'm working with new artists, including Al, they, have, they will have written maybe 60 songs or 50 songs um, and they'll have them produced. And everybody, all those producers are all trying to mix songs and make to give them so, so sound like they're finished. So when the record label listens to them all, the record label pick are trying to pick 15 yeah. singles yeah. And, all the, and the ones that sound finished. So, and I, I don't agree with that. I don't see the right. record. I don't, I don't think record labels should behave like consumers. Mm-hmm. Record labels should be behave like record makers. Yeah. And that art of making records, not just singles, but ra- making, cultivating an artist and cultivating a, a body of work and a period of time 
is being is becoming a lost art, but it's still important because there are artists that recognize it as being important, like Taylor Swift said. Hmm. When it's evident, the suburbs by the arcade fire, when it went um at Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, when you see it, everyone goes, Of course, that's what's yeah. better. Yes. No one has the balls to make a record like that because, right. because it's a big risk. It's yeah. less risky to have multiple producers, multiple songwriters, and everybody vying for that song. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have these weird artists that we don't quite know who they are. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we just don't trust them. Yeah, and, that's and a good point. So what I'm expecting from an artist is I'm, I want to trust them. I want to trust their intentions and I want to trust the beginning of the journey that I'm going to take with them. And I want to know that they're not going to turn around and I'm going to be embarrassed. I mean, I know it's a big ask, yeah. but like, I'm not going to, you know, it's going to happen in a few years where, where it was all just some kind of joke or some kind of, I want to be able to enjoy the, this weird journey. So when I, when I see a new artist, I'm looking at them going, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to take, few songs you know like there's a band from England called wet leg i'm kind of interested in and i'm looking at them and going, this is really exciting they get a free pass the new band but it's really what happens on that second record the second black yeah. party record the second editor's record it's really the third or fourth record where you start to go okay this is going to be interesting yeah and with a lot of new artists when they have so many producers so many songs we're not getting to know who they are we're not getting to hear them make mistakes we're not getting to see the embarrassment and the failures and this stuff where where careers are made you know we have accessibility to so many different ways of getting music and there's a lot of really admirable producers and records and songs out there but i feel like they're impressive Mm -hmm. but i love very few of them yeah i'm i'm impressed by the way they sound i'm impressed by their Articulacy, or you know, whatever they're, you know, they're, they're, yeah. the articulate quality of the right. idea. That's a clear idea, right? And it's, I'm impressed, but I don't like them. Yeah, and it's not all things, but it's like some things, like a lot of things, I do like. And they're, you know, these things, like what the fuck is that? You know, these weird an- anomalies. But when something is so well presented and so constructed. And it's like a French pastry. Yes, it's really impressive, mm-hmm. but it's not exciting. Yeah. It's just, oh, I'm really impressed by your work. Great. Right. I feel uh, that so, too. So that comes from the culture of multiple producers. Yeah. So when you're talking about Elle King, that's, that's the, she's a product of the process. Like I know when I worked with her, she had been signed two years before that we made that record. And they kept on saying no to this song, no to this song, no to this song. And they just wanted it to come in fully produced, mixed and ready to go. And that's not the, well, I don't agree with that. So there's no song doctoring and there's no eye, eye on um, career path. Mm-hmm. So when I see new bands, they are exhausted by the time, before their albums, they've written 50, 60 songs. And I don't agree with that. Yeah, I think start recording your album the day you come into the studio. So like with editors, and block party, I would encourage them to come in with no songs. Or Snow Patrol, don't I, just start, let's start recording. There is no song. You don't have to do any songs. We're just going to start recording. So we capture the excitement. But most of these artists, they get signed early. Elle was signed a long time before the record came out. And then she waited for ages for the record to come out. Some songs have been lying around. And then 
when the record was finally mixed, I called up the A&R guy and said, I don't like the mix of the song. Mm. And he was so stressed because he had so many bands. He had 30 bands on his, you know, carousel that he, yeah. he was more frustrated with me putting a spell in the work saying, let's take another mix because now I was, now I was creating trouble. Yeah. And he said to me, how can it be bad? Because you've produced it and this person mixed it. How can that be bad? And I got an insight into how the record industry works there. It was, I was a safe pair of hands and so were the mixer. So that was one less thing to have to think about. And there was no time. Now, once the record got onto the release schedule, there was no time to make changes. We got to, yeah. come on, get moving. Yeah. And um, so that's the way it is with a lot of new artists. That's too and bad. The bit that they're not, they're missing is that attention. Yeah. Is, you know, when you look at uh, those documentaries in Elton John or whatever they are, mm. and these bands that took years to happen. That yeah. doesn't happen. No. It doesn't happen anymore. Um, okay, let me ask. Okay, one more. One more. Um, Speaking of legacy bands, you worked with the Cars. Did you do all of Move Like This or just part of it? And I want to know what the dynamic of the band was because that reunion didn't last very long. So I woke up one day with an email from Rick Kasich saying, hi, this is Rick. Do you want to produce the cars? Which was one of the greatest emails I've ever gotten in my life. I said, absolutely, yes. He sent me some demos. So they had no bass player, obviously. Ben was the past. Um, so we didn't have much time. I did half the record. But they did half themselves. I remember I said to the drummer, Dave, when was the last time you played drums? Just curious, and we were in the studio, and he said, um, I played bongos a while ago. And he said, uh, 26 years ago? Wow. So I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, so I I made some templates of, of demos that we could get recording, because I knew we, live was out of, the question, out of the question. We couldn't have them play live. Uh, uh, there's no bass player, uh, and the drummer would be questionable. Mm -hmm. So amazing guy and he was really ill he uh, he got here and he's very ill he had this terrible bug and he couldn't play wow. so i thought i'll make up templates and we'll play along to them and then in doing so we kind of got this very stripped down sound that was similar to the first record that was you know um i knew that i wanted philippe zadar to mix the record um so it was going to sound modern and philippe was a big fan of the cars 
Philippe was in Motor Bass and Cassius and mixed the Phoenix records mm-hmm. and some amazing records. He died a few years ago, unfortunately. One of the again, one of the great producers that doesn't get mentioned enough. Uh, I wanted him to to mix it, and it was going to make this clean, tight record. So, so I started programming stuff, and then we, uh, Greg was, one of the great greatest keyboard players. Uh, he taught me a lot. Rick was a gentleman, and the band was. It was just the most wonderful sessions. It was obvious that there had been tension, mm-hmm. um, and I was the the person that would be in the middle of anything that it should have kicked off. Nothing really kicked off because I was, um, you know, I'd, I'd been, I'd used to, I'd been used to that role of um, being the tension diffuser, you know, take it out of me or say something to me, I'll say it to the other person. And, you know, that's the way it went. And things went really smoothly. Um, the only thing I regret in that record, which is, a, you know, I don't regret many things on many records. You've brought up three that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, editor's sounds too big block party sounds too big I do like the prayer I like if we did after that for the next record but um, I regret not getting a guitar solo on that record yeah um, which was a stupid stupid mistake uh, but anyway I didn't they got keyboard solos but I didn't get a yeah. guitar solo and um, that really um, Elliot's so wonderful that's right I yeah. didn't even think about that yeah I know I I, I felt uh, Elliot, Elliot's lovely Amazing player, and uh, it was it was, you know, I got. I, it was a mistake. It was a real mistake. So that's when I do regret uh. that record. And then I went to see them live, and it was wonderful. I got to play bass with the Cars as well. I mean, wow. that was extraordinary. I didn't wow. play bass with them live, but um, I got to see them afterwards. And I said to Rick, "That was amazing. It was really good." And he said to me. That was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I'm never doing it again. <laughs> and that was the end of it. Um, That's so funny. They came, I live in Denver. They came through Denver and um, they only played, I think, nine shows on that reunion, but I didn't know that. And they came and I thought, I don't know what it was. I'd had like a long day at work or something. And I thought, I'm not really in the mood. They're just getting this reunion back going. They'll be back around here soon. So I skipped it. Little did I know it would never happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a, that was one of the great honors of you know I've been in, in the rooms with um, some extraordinary people mm-hmm. that you know most of the time when I'm working I'm just working and you know uh, you get over the fact very quickly and then I look around just I'm caught mm-hmm. and I'm like oh my god there they are there's that yeah. group of people yeah. um, and a few times with the cars like I um, I had them clap. The clapping on that first Cars record sounded like nothing else I'd ever heard. When we were talking about songwriting, and I mean, I like songs, you know. Some songs are great and, some, and, and, and don't do well, and some songs are terrible and do well. It doesn't, you know, some songs impact me, some songs don't. But sometimes it's a noise that, 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 that I just adore. Mm-hmm. And it can be a single noise. And for the Cars, it was the dryness of those claps yeah, that changed my world. I mean, that was, I don't know what was going on. I, when I heard, I was, you know, I heard it when it came out. So I was a kid, I must've been eight or seven or something. And I remember at the time hearing it, that was like nothing else I've heard. Mm-hmm. So when we started working, I, first thing I did was 
have them clap, like in the room, clap, yeah. clap, clapping in the room. And it was amazing. It was Genius. really amazing. Um, so I had, I used to listen to the recordings of them clapping. Mm. I don't know where the damn drive is now. Because I had somebody uh, I worked with who was such a big cause fan. said, get me the claps. Yeah. Can I hear the claps? Oh, wow. Because it's them clapping and then yeah. talking as well. You know, so oh, just clapping. That's genius. But uh, yeah, that was great. Uh, Rick Good. was such a generous person, you know. Um, glad to hear in that. terms of, you know, some people I have, I've asked me to work with them. I'm so frightened of the prospects mm-hmm. of stories that are difficult. And I, I generally... Uh, choose difficult people to work with mm. just because it's it's um you know I, some people i, I have said no to because i'm i'm genuinely afraid of mm. of violence or vomit um but a lot of people i end up working with even when i've said i've never worked with them again i've, mm-hmm. so I've worked with them again just because mm. it's the energy is really weird yeah. and i don't thrive and i don't like stress but to 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 get somebody to be creative in, in, in weird energy is uh, is amazing. Like once I did the editor's record, we tried to do the, set, the third record, which Flood ended up doing, and we started it, and we were having such a good time that I thought, there's no tension in this room at all. Mm-hmm. We can't make a record. <laughs> I need some that- tension. It, well, I'm not, it's not even tension. It's just like there's something not yeah. in the room. Yeah, some electricity. There's, there's no fear. Yeah. And also, I wasn't, um, I wasn't trying to impress them. And I need to impress people. Mm. It's, it's like a fault. I need to. That makes sense. I need to uh, not show off, but I need to, like. Yeah, you need to be challenged too. Yeah, and I everybody need to, does. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so we, 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 there wasn't there wasn't something there, and it was out of my interesting. Yeah, well, um, this was you, more than I the, bargained for. You're going to edit all this shit down, right? <laughs> yeah, well, no. <laughs> yeah, you got to get. It's going to be one of our longer ones. Uh, we've had some other long, you know, I had uh, Rupert Hine on here before he died, thank God. And, um, we talked for two, two and a half hours, too, just full of stories. What so, no, this now? is great stuff. We're at uh, two and a half hours. Okay, almost. no, you got to get that down. I, I because, Yeah, get that down to like an hour. Nope, nope, it's not going to be. Um, but anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, did we do it all? Did we cover everything? No, of course not. Um, <laughs> no. Um, I've got so many other records coming out. It, I know. Insane. I know. Um, uh, well, um, yeah, anyway. I know. I tried to cover the new stuff, the stuff I was interested in. I let, let the stories flow naturally. I hope we did uh, the best we could. Yeah. So well, my, then I, got a, I do have a record that... Um, it's, it, I'm in the middle of making it. It's the most extraordinary record I've done. I'm not, I can't, it's, it's, it, it's, it's with a guy called Lonnie Holly. Mm. And I've got, I've got, if you could have a dream list of guests that you think, I'm going to call that person, they're going to say no. Mm-hmm. And they've all said yes. It's an oh insane record. So, um, good. I'm in the middle of doing that. And I just finished the new tele, I'm in the middle of finishing the new Telefish record. Yeah. The second, the next one. Um, okay. Telefish 2. And there's twin, what is it? Twin, twin Atlantic. Um, yeah, Twin Atlantic. It's probably about, I've got a, I, and I got another record coming out in The Regrets. Um, really yeah. great guy from Ireland. David C. David C. Clements. Yeah. Uh, there's loads of them. It's, there's it's, tons. Uh, 
I'm doing the next modest marathon at the moment. Oh, wow. I'm going anyway. So there's a lot happening. I, well, I, I do better records when I've got a lot happening. I'm busy, you know. I can tell, and you're um, super busy. All right, there you have it, Jackknife Lee. As I said, it was a doozy, right? We covered as much ground as you can. I mean, I could have done an hour on every name he dropped in this conversation, but there was, there just wasn't time to cover everything. Everything that he does. I mean, it's constant busyness. But you can tell that he's so inspired by making music and making music the right way with the right people that it just, who wouldn't want to live in that state of inspiration and creativity all the time? One of the bands I really wanted to ask him about, and we just flat ran out of time, was The Hives. He did their Black and White album, which I love. So I wanted to play a song off of that album here. As I said, that Telefiche album, which I wish I could pronounce the word. I don't know what it is. It's Irish. A, a, a hern? I don't even know. Anyway, it comes out March 4th. So put a, put a pin on that and look for his Telefiche album that he made with Cottle. It's a great album. Well, the singles that I've heard are really, really good. Uh, now, next week, next week we're going down under. We haven't been down under for a while, but I'm glad we're going down under next week. I mean, this person is really an Aussie legend, okay? That's who we're going to talk to next week. And no, it's not a member of Midnight Oil. I wish it was. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for doing this with me. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Folks, you guys know, you can find our page on Facebook. You can give us a like on there. You can send us a message if you want. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, we didn't get around to that uh, to the year-end recap last weekend. So that should be coming this weekend, I hope. And then we've got a couple of book clubs in the can. Anyway, there's a lot going on. There's going to be some bonus material for the next month or two, okay? All right, thanks, everybody. We love you.